This is exactly right. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hi and hello. Welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. We talk SVU. We talk crimes. We have guests, celebs. It's really a jam-packed, amazing podcast. And we love that you listen to it. What's up, bitch? (laughs) I have not been in the country for over three weeks. I'm back. I'm back in New York. Had an aggressive cab driver and I feel right at home where I belong. (laughs) I like it. But he had the worst toenails I'd ever seen, and it might haunt me forever. I'm sorry. How did you see your cab driver's toenails? Well, he he put my bag in the car. Obviously, my bag is. And he was wearing <laughs> a man. And he was wearing a mandal. He was wearing a mandals, and it was like some of the. It was the worst. It was. It's gonna haunt me forever. I can't. I I really can't handle a bad toe. I really really can't. Like I just no. like put on a clog, sir. What are you doing? Yeah, put on a. It's like a nylon. I don't know. It was bad. It was bad. <laughs> yeah. crumbling in front of my eyes. My husband um, gets pedicures like regularly, and he is like, I can't believe I never did these. Like I feel like I'm walking on a cloud, and it really has improved things. He's got good feet now. Yeah, it's nice that um, men have learned, like, I don't know, just get your feet done. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we have to look at them, so. Fucking get it together. It's like the least you can fucking do. Like, nose hair and fucking toes. Just do it. Yeah. Ugh, these men. I agree. I also saw something horrific in London. I don't know if you want to be horrified to or not, but it's going to live in my mind forever. See, I want to know. It's not that bad. Okay. It was basically, it was unfortunately a man on the street with his laying down with his butt fully out, covered fully in shit everywhere, <laughs> smeared shit. And there was like a crowd around him. So I went, ooh, I wonder what's going on. And then I saw him and then a woman was helping him. But I was like, this will not leave me. So those are the things that'll Wow. Me. Can we put like a pickup in where I go, okay, if you're one of those people that got offended at that thing Lisa said a few episodes ago, oh, yeah. please fast forward because this is another poop comment. <laughs> and I don't even like poop humor, but not, not, no, nothing of this was not, funny. You're not, not funny. laughing. You're just no. telling me the story. <laughs> like, uh, But it is wild. I was like in Lapland in the pure forest in the Arctic and that wasn't the first thing I told um, any of our listeners. All I said was <laughs> there was shit in an ugly toe. Yeah, That's like what I came back from. <laughs> literally, you were on the trip of a lifetime for 10 days, dream trip, and you're like, oh, I saw a guy covered in shit in London. First thing. <laughs> first item reported. My friend got married in a beautiful yeah. ceremony. <laughs> But that's what I said, because I also it was like an amazing crew and production and I was obsessed with everyone and I can't wait to see them all again. But the first story I told you was like the one person I didn't get along yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. It's like not a good brain to I have, was like, I how guess. was it? It sounded amazing. Well, this one fucking bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but even that's fun. You know, like we experienced that on a bachelorette party once. It is fun to have a common enemy. Yes, you know, yes. it, it keeps the tension off of everyone else because no one's going to hate each other more than that bitch. So it's like, <laughs> nice. Yes, for sure. A common enemy can be fun. Yeah. What did I miss? Your child turned one. You know, no, My everyone child says you don't one. like Oliver. He's like locked in the cupboard like <laughs> uh, Cinderella. Cleaning Oscar, already. No attention. My little nugget. 
My little smiley nugget, Oscar, turned one. I made it to a year. Um, yeah, I'm excited. We're having a little birthday party for him this weekend, joint with another one-year-old. So it's like a little joint party because Ro- Rosie's birthday was so recently. It's like, I just can't get involved in another full solo party. I needed someone else to share the work with me. So joint party this weekend, the day I land from New York. It's just going to be great. I can't wait. Um- <laughs> yeah, you guys. So Kara's meeting. Well, it's not for me, but we will both be in New York together this weekend. So maybe we will we'll probably go stories. live on the That's Messed Up We'll account. go live. And this is in the past. So you'll, you will yeah. have maybe seen us live together in New York. We are I'm in the time machine. I'm sorry the time machine is so annoying and now it's even more annoying and we're so happy to be at the Wondry family. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it has made the time machine even more aggressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, it has made it hard. Yeah. But, um, well, like, speaking of the time machine, I just want to touch on this very briefly because it is annoying. But this is time machine, so this will have the old news. But the Amber Heard verdict and Don- Johnny Depp verdict just came out moments before we were uh, recording this podcast. And uh, she got found guilty. And it's just really, I mean, not guilty because it's not a criminal trial. It's a civil trial. She has to pay. She has to pay. She got asked to pay him $10 million and then $3 million, and he has to pay her $2 million. So I don't even know if this bitch has $11 million. I also feel as though she... I think they are, have been in a mutually abusive relationship. That's my opinion from what I've gathered. But I also think people are acting like she completely invented all of her abuse. And I don't think that that's true. And I think that that's misogyny at its best. So, and also bots have been taking over the internet supporting Johnny Depp. Like there have been troll farms and yeah, bots. Yeah, but people have loved Johnny Depp for years because like they, I mean, the, people have Johnny Depp. There's a man with Johnny Depp tattoos all over his back of all the different characters he's played. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I just guess I Johnny never Depp. realized he had such a deep fan base. And but I also think that right now the world is on fucking fire in so many different ways that this is like the case that everybody feels like they can joke about. I just talked about this on Hysteria today, but like everybody feels like this is like, oh, this is two celebrities that are just like suing each other for money. This is like the funny thing, like the punchline news story that we can talk about. And it just feels like she's getting Monica lewinsky That's all. Yeah, I mean, I also do think she's a crazy bitch, like I do. Sure. And so to me, I'm just pissed because also like what you said with the bots, it's like incel, like bait. It's catnip yeah. for the incels. Men's to them to have activists. a false accusation out there, to have one woman lie, it's like this is all they need forever and ever. So that's why I'm mad at Amber Heard because it's like, you're going to make it harder for fucking everybody, any women to come forward anymore. Now people have to be scared about civil trials. But like, I also I don't know. think he was abusive to her. You don't? I don't know. I've been not paying attention because I've been so like bummed about what this is going to do for like victims to come for decades. Yeah, it's a bummer. It's a real bummer. And this is civil. Luckily, it's not. it's not criminal. But like he sued her for defamation over something that she wrote in an op-ed. That's what the whole case was about. She wrote and said, I'm a victim of domestic violence. She did not name him, like nothing. And he started this whole lawsuit that brought in so much more dirt about him that he defamed himself. Like now there's all this shit. Everybody knows like he's got old managers and old uh, agents saying this fucking guy orders a a case of wine to his house every day. He's got a staff of 40 people and like they all are on eggshells around him because he's a psycho. Like he shows up late to set. He punched someone on a set. I mean, like he's not, he's no angel. 
fucking Johnny Depp. No, you know? I don't think so. I, th- but you're totally right because I've only just been on the internet, like just Twitter, Instagram. And yeah, I did not hear or see any of that. Yeah. All like I've the seen and heard is over. just Amber being like a dumb bitch. I understand like calling someone that's a victim of abuse like a crazy bitch might be seen as bad, but also crazy bitches could get attacked. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's the whole idea of like perfect and imperfect victims. That's annoying where it's like all these people that might lie or have records or do other things can still be abused. People in jail get raped all the time. So I have my moments of being a crazy bitch. Yeah, I've been a crazy bitch in some moments of my life. You know, like, I don't know if I trust her in terms of like, I don't know, would I let her borrow a top? I don't know. Yeah. On this, on the Amber Heard trust scale, it's like, I'd let her borrow a top. I don't think I'd let her watch my kids, but you know. Yeah. And it, she's allowed to be a crazy bitch. I mean, that's the, at the end of the day, you know, and she could still be someone that deserves empathy. And like and, a fair and, trial justice, and, like, and justice and justice and a fair trial, yeah. It's all and what's wild is like everybody's making money on this. Like right wing websites are like post spending all this money to push their Amber Heard, Johnny Depp shit on Facebook. And also like uh Etsy people are making like, you know, f- like j- justice for Johnny shit. And like YouTube people are completely pivoting their content. They're like, okay, no makeup tutorial today. Instead, I'm just gonna give my hot take on the Depp Herd trial. Like everybody's just trying and they're making and they're getting thousands and thousands of hits. Like everybody's just like obsessed with this shit right now. So I just figured we had to address it. But it feels like it's misogyny, but I also think it was a mutually abusive relationship and that she's not completely innocent, but that she ha- it has been a victim, in my opinion. Yeah, I just am scared what this will do forever. Like, I'm just so annoyed to sit at any comedy club ever again and this topic come up. Like, it's I know. Just good. It just, like, makes it's life. So, I hear exactly what you're saying. Well, because even, um, so I just went on Instagram. Obviously, it's a tick and I'm addicted. And it was Whitney Cummings live with Tiffany Haddish. And Whitney, she was saying the craziest shit. I was like, I have to log off because I, I also caught it in the middle. But Whitney was pretty much saying, like, you need to think twice before you come forward because then um, your name is going to be associated with this person forever and you need to pick your battles. And anytime you get abused, you better write it down, send an email, tell a friend because that's what you need and it sucks, but you need evidence and you need to realize if it's worth it or not to come forward because of your name and you'll always be attached to this person. And I was like, oh my God. Like shit's about, I just like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just nervous for everybody else forever. And it's always like one step forward, 80 steps back constantly. Yeah. Because even like years ago, I got into an argument with a bunch of comics and they were talking about the few women that lied about Bill O'Reilly. I was like, but didn't dozens of them tell the truth? Yeah. I'm like, why is that not more worrisome to you? But that's because they're all rapists. So they're like nervous. But I don't know. So it might be something I skip in terms of being super invested in. Oh, yeah. I mean, and no one will talk about it in two days. I just feel like this woman's life is probably like going to be, you know, who knows? Maybe she'll sell a book and that'll be the money she has to pay Johnny Depp. Who knows? But on Hysteria today, after we talked about this fucking train wreck for a while, we also did our sanity. They do a thing called Sanity Corner. And I talked about uh, All Star 7, which is bringing me a lot of joy right now. You just got back and you were able to, because Lisa has not, Lisa has not quite negotiated the world of a VPN. So when she's abroad, she doesn't have the access to all of her. Famously, she thought a VPN was a stick. So, you know, like (laughs) we definitely have to (laughs) give her a little. So she hasn't been able to tune in to what I am finding to be a delightful fucking season of television. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm only in the first episode, but obviously already cried when Shea Coulee and Naomi Campbell had the moment. Naomi Campbell's eyes turned wet and I was like a puddle. And then Jada's crying. Is she good enough or not? And that's actually where I paused to get on to our lovely little Zoom recording. It's just everybody is excellent. It's like, you know, we watch these seasons and there's like three or four fillers at the beginning and you're like, okay, let's get to when we get to the competition. Like, you're not really going to be that competitive and like everybody's good everybody has their own strengths no one goes home there so there's not really a lot of like catty bitchiness they all love each other they're all awesome like fucking Raja rules like I don't know I don't even know Raja's always been my number one fashion queen and I'm just glad she she finally gets the chance to like I just think she's also just beautiful even in confessional I'm like you're gorgeous Mm. like and like I won't this isn't a spoiler but last night on the episode there was just a voiceover where Raja's coming down the runway and it's her own voiceover going fuck I look good (laughs) (laughs) and I was like yeah you're right like my husband and I just started like cracking up it was so funny um um, but yeah, everybody's great. I love Jinx. I don't know. I don't know who I'm going for. I think I'm going for either Raja or Jinx. And I think that's just because they haven't, they, they're farther back for me. Like they're more classic, but like, I don't know. I think everyone thinks Jinx is going to win. So we'll see. But I, I do want, it would be fun if either Trinity or Monet took it just to yeah. settle the score. Trinity in and a way. Shay are like also amazing competitors. Like they're really. Well, Shay to me, I mean, I'm only one in, but like her confessionals are so funny and so like snappy and to the point and clever. And I'm like, I cannot believe we get to talk to her. Like, I know. It is really shocking that Shay has taken a love for us because I don't know if we're worthy of it. I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, no, but what I watched in the UK, um, their drag race is on Netflix. So I just rewatched five, six, seven, and eight. Like, you know, while I was in bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, So one of my favorite things in life are people doing impressions of me and like especially (laughs) non-Americans because the accents are so good. Um, But my friend Emma did the best impression of me. She's like, your stories are always one eye open. And it's just you going, I don't know if I'm going to make my flight. We'll see. I made my flight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like your bed ones where, you you know, there's a little bit of eyeliner on there and one eye's open. They're so funny. That's and then really um, one of the nights in Finland, I shared a room with a DT, um, an Indian comic who's incredible. And But I, I sleep with a laptop. And then she, the next morning, got, got up and she's like, you need help. She's like, you're fucking sick. BoJack Horseman, the saddest episodes. I go, what are you talking about? She goes, when Sarah Lynn dies, that's what you're sleeping to? Just the most tragic episodes of television? I'm like, I don't know. And she goes, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night and she's like, I slowly closed your laptop so quietly. And she, <laughs> she said that I woke up like... <gasps> What's going on? Like, I fully woke up that I needed the laptop. And she's like, like you're a, a sick like, person. Laptop is your noise machine, like, for my children. <laughs> yes. Like, they need a white noise machine, and that's your white noise machine. So those are, like, the two. Oh, I had caviar pasta. Now I'm like, have you eaten anything good? But when I'm back in L.A., uh, well, well, we're going to San Diego. Fuck. I fucking, I want Bell's bagels so bad. I guess I'm in oh, New York. I, can I have will a bagel say, I tr- well, I'll tell you this off mic. It's kind of boring. What'd um, you have? No, tell me. No, I just tried this new place that's in our neighborhood that's been saying it was going to open for like two years. I think you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to no, name it. Oh, is it a drug front I, or not? I, well, it's not a drug front, but it, they need to work out some kinks. I'm going to go back in a few months when the kinks are worked out. What's like, the kink? They've been first they've been of all. Not- it's a it's a place that serves slices. They give you a buzzer. I'm like, I shouldn't have to wait for a but like heat it up and give it to me. Like Sabaro has mastered this. Like, give me the piece. 
And then I got a pizza bagel that was just like, eh. But like, I am going to try it again in a few months. I just feel like it's cute. And like, they have a great salad. I know that's like not really a selling point for like a full pizza place. But like, yeah, we can cut this. This is like a review of a local of a place. I don't place. think it's that bad. I, I don't think it's boring. I think people need to know about <laughs> bagels and slices that we're into and not into. Um, I, I had I had for the first time reindeer, reindeer tongue. Oh my I, God. I ate moose. Yeah. I definitely haven't had anything remotely cool, but like, that's amazing. A lot of whitefish. I mean, I went fishing. I fully like helped a fisherman like nets in the lake on his little boat. And I was like pulling fish out and he was bopping them on the head to like unconscious. And like some of them were still flopping in this bucket and in the water. And like, I thought I'd have feelings for them. Like I am a compassionate person that does like animals. I felt nothing for these fish. They were Listen, flopping for air. If I it's felt, not a pig decorating in its neck. own barn, you're not interested. <laughs> I bled a fish out. I, he held it and I stabbed it in its neck as blood poured out and I felt nothing. You went full yellow jackets over in Finland, huh? <laughs> I did. Well, because <laughs> it's like I either Paris Hilton and go, eh, I don't know. <laughs> or I fucking act respectful and do the job with these fishermen where it's like, this is this guy's had this fishing company since 1987. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, so to me, I was like, I'm just going to do what they do. I'm not going to like be offensive. But then I also had to question like, what's wrong with, I felt well, like they were looking at me in the eyes. a little bit different. I mean, I'm a pescatarian. <laughs> I don't know. Fish don't make any noise. It's not like they're like, no, like as you, you know, like, I don't no, know. No, just swarming around, but it felt great. I was just like grabbing these fish with my bare hands as they flipped and flopped in my hand. I mean, it was like, it was, I challenged myself. I cannot myself. wait to like fucking crash in a plane with you and you keep us alive by catching fish with your bare hands. It's going to be amazing. Well, yeah, I'm going to get a knife soon. Yeah, fuck yeah. Just don't forget to put it in your checked luggage. My fucking crazy dad always go goes through security with a knife on his belt and forgets. Oh my God, there was a little dog training at the airport today, learning how to be a drug dog, but it kept harassing people that like might've just had lunch, you know, because it's <laughs> it was a dog that was training. And I was like, you're like panicking a lot of people right now. Can you take your puppy away? <laughs> like this old couple was having a heart attack. Oh my God. Watch the old yeah. couple just had so much Coke strapped to the inside of their shirts. No, but one of the other comedians I was with, the park rangers gifted her an axe, but she's also like from South Africa, not a citizen, like all of these <laughs> things and with an axe. And she did get held in customs for a while. Oh my God, because of the axe? I didn't ask because I didn't want to message her just in case they were going to use her phone. Like, I didn't know how deep it was going to oh, go. Got so it. I was like, yeah. I was like, we can't message her about the axe. <laughs> <laughs> You the thought so many steps it. ahead. I love it. Um, okay, Listen, wait. I've become we, a this murderer. This is like a massive intro because we haven't caught up in a long time because you've no, been we haven't doing seen each so other. many... But we're going to be in New York, so next week's intro is going to be even more exciting because it's going to be stories about us being Recap, together. yes. And going to see our friend Allison Libby's show, which we have plugged a million times, which I believe... Well, actually, it was extended. So I believe it's playing yeah. the whole second half of June if you're in New York and you haven't gotten tickets to Oh God, An Hour About Abortion at the Cherry Lane. Please go get them. You guys don't want to miss it. We're seeing it this week and we're so excited. A couple more little pluggy plugs. Uh, I am going to be a guest on another Exactly Right podcast called uh, Parent Footprint, which is a podcast about parenting. If you're interested, uh, the host is Dr. Dan and he is really charming and lovely to listen to. And we just talked about parenting and stuff and we had a great time. And that comes out on June 16th if you're interested on the Exactly Not Right Network. And then guys, you know I'm going to tell you, we are coming to Minnesota, Minneapolis this weekend. 
the 19th of June. It's Father's Day, but it's in the afternoon. Take a break from your dad or your husband or whoever is the father figure in your life and come see us at the... I don't know. It's the Minneapolis Comedy Festival. All the it's a venue a little too big for us. It's going to yeah, be a problem. We really it's- need you guys. <laughs> we really need Minneapolis to like turn out because, you know, they booked us in something that I think was a little ambitious. Um, <laughs> where they didn't book us in a place that was ambitious was Chicago and we are almost sold out. We are very likely going to be sold out on the 20th by the time this episode comes out. But I believe there's still a few tickets left for the 21st. That's a Tuesday um, of June, 21st of June. Come see us at Zany's downtown. And yeah, our bio has all on Instagram. Instagram has all of, or that's messed up live.com actually is where you can find all of our tickets. In my hometown, bitch. Um, also, this is old news, but new news, but we did get reports from <sighs> a costume department person from Law & Order SVU. Or no, she works, she may she, be a It PA. was a friend of hers who worked there. Like, so the, the listener Yeah, why don't you take over? Friend. Well, a listener asked their friend who works in the costume department, like, is there anything to this whole purple thing? I listened to this podcast where they're obsessed with the fact that everyone's always wearing purple and we know it's the color of domestic violence and there's all these other uh, theories everyone has. And the woman that wrote back from the costume department was like, literally, no. Like, there's nothing to that. Like, a lot of times, because it's so dark where they shoot, certain colors like teal or red will show up as purple, but it's not a conscious thing that they're doing and it's not about domestic violence. I guess that's just a coincidence and we're all colorblind. I don't really know, but that's that on that. That's <laughs> the costume tea, hunty. Yes, hunty. <laughs> Did you um, see the video of Gigi Hadid and Emma Chamberlain on the red carpet of the Met Gala talking like two gay men from like two years ago? No. It's like pretty funny. It's um, it, She's just like, oh my God, I saw you and you slayed. She goes, I slayed major slay. You're a major slay. Oh, I did see this. I did see <laughs> oh this. God. I don't think I knew it was Emma Chamberlain, but I saw, um, I saw uh, Gigi doing that. That Wait, we speech. have, oh my God, Kravis, the wedding. I mean, we, I, we have to go. I don't know what to do, but do you have any thoughts on the Kravis wedding? I don't know what it is, but I'm happy for those two. <laughs> Me too. I like, whenever I, I see their posts, I'm like, the Kardashians in general, I'm like, enough. But like, those two, and Courtney has always been the most boring one to me. And she looks like, she seems like she's dead to me all the time. Like her eyes are dead. Her voice is dead. And she seems a little bit more alive with Travis. And so I like that. I want them to live and be alive together. I watched an, um, his Architectural Digest on YouTube. And I always love when celebrities think things that are very regular are only special to them. So he was like, yeah, we're just so in love. And we really go all out on Christmas and our birthdays. And it was like, Whoa. yeah, that's like a very normal thing to do <laughs> to just like get your partner a nice gift yeah. on a holiday. On their birthday. It's like, tell me you're going all out on flag day, bitch. I want to yeah. do something different. So then he goes, yeah, she was holding this candle and was like, you gave this to me three years ago. And he's like, we're just so connected. And I'm like, you're just so cut off from the regular world. <laughs> like you're truly a regular couple, but it seems sweet. And they like their kids all like each other. I just wish the best for them. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't care about that card. Oh, I do have fucking gossip, but I don't know if it's mine to tell. And he seems like a good guy because I saw him doing a makeup tutorial with like his teen child. And I thought that was really sweet. Like she was doing a tattoo cover up on him and he was like her model. And I thought that was really cute. So I I think he seems like a good guy. Anyway, let's start this. We could talk about God. We have to start. We have to be like, we have to literally be like Race Chaser where we start a separate podcast called Hot Goss where we just talk about other shit that doesn't have to do with drag. You know what I mean? Like they do a podcast where I they would just like talk that. about their own shit. Yeah, that's because, what we have to do. Uh, from Sex in the City, just like that, Che is on the cover of a magazine. Saw Did it. you see that? Saw all the fashion. 
Che is back in the fucking zeitgeist, babies. All right, let's start this episode. We've got a good one for you guys. Don't move a muscle. Okay, so we are covering today, Stolen, Season 3, Episode 3. Exciting. This is a, wow, very close to 9-11 episode. I just realized the air date is 10-12-2001. And, okay, the episode opens in a grocery store, and this new mom is, like, carting her baby along with her, and she asks the stock boy, like, where's the baby formula? And then she leaves the cart with the baby in it at the top of the aisle. And I, I don't really have a problem with that. It's just there's no reason for it. Like, she walks over to a place where there's so much space to park a grocery cart and starts loading up formula into her arms. And it's like, it's not like it was a weird corner where you couldn't fit the stroller. So she leaves it at the top of the aisle. And I get it that this is a cold open of a television show and we have to, a tragedy to get to, but it just seemed weird to me. And then she gets all this formula and she starts walking back to the cart and done, done. The baby is gone. She's like, Emma! She starts, she drops all the formula, starts screaming, my baby, someone stole my baby. And then we cut to Benson and Stabler on the scene, getting the rundown from a uniform cop. The baby is six weeks old. It's very young. Emma Derechek. And um, Stabler's immediately blaming the mom. And um, I know I kind of did as well, but he was like, you know, one second's all it takes. But mine was just like logistically, I, I really don't have a problem with leaving a baby for two seconds, but uh, I guess someone could take them. And that's what this episode is proving. And um, Stabler's like... Oh, no, sorry. I wrote a note where I was like, okay, Stabler, you never answered a call from Liv while you were watching Dickie at a supermarket. Like, ease up. And then um, they're searching the whole store and the mom has uh, checked all the other babies that were in the store and none of them are her baby. And then a uniform shows up and is like, the motor vehicle office down the street just found something in the ladies' room. And it's like, this is the second episode we've done recently where SVU likes to act like the DMV is helpful. Like, I just cannot believe that the DMV is like, hey, we, we found some clues in your case, like, right as it's unfolding. But, um, um, you know, we love a good fiction. So in the bathroom of the motor vehicle office, uh, they find baby's clothes, an eyedropper, and some capsules, which, and Liv identifies the drug as Librium. And she thinks that they just like watered it down and gave it to the baby to be quiet. And they also find a baby's pink bow with a lock of hair cut off. And it's like, you can just remove the bow. Like most babies have pretty short hair and it's not going to really give away the gender or the sex, <laughs> excuse me. Like, it's weird. So anyway, yeah, it's just all so babies weird. look the same. Yeah, like <laughs> you could just take the bow out. I get the bow is an identifying thing. And they're like, so there's this creepy like little lock of baby hair that's being sort of passed around. And, you know, it's that's the credits. And we're like, where's this fucking baby? This is stressful. So back at the store, the mom, Michelle, is like, how could this happen? And I looked her up because she looked so familiar to me. And her name is Carrie Green. And she was in Goonies. She was in Summer Rental. And she was in the movie Lucas, which are were like big movies that came out for me like around the same time. Like I remember watching Lucas all the time. It was with... um one of the Corys, I think, is in Lucas. I think Corey Haim is in Lucas. And uh, she just had a few years of being a teen queen in movies, and now she just, like, doesn't act anymore. But she that this SVU, I think, was her last thing that she did. But um, I just thought that was interesting that I thought I recognized her, and it's from her being a literal 18-year-old. And so they're like, is anyone, have you noticed anyone watching you? Have you noticed anyone paying attention to the baby weirdly? And she's like, stop grilling me. And she's blaming herself and she's really freaking out. And then her husband, Tony, gets but also, there. also, I really hate when the people are like, 
stop asking me questions and go get my baby. It's like they have to ask you some questions. Yeah, like that, they have to that's solve. That's how like, they get the baby. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's yeah. such a trope of like, why are you wasting your time talking to me? And it's like the one witness, yeah. the one person who was <laughs> yeah, there. Completely. We got to ask you questions. Completely. Her husband, Tony, gets there. And, and her husband, this is actually a jam-packed episode of SVU, I mean, Sex in the City Oh, he's alum. like one of the only guys I didn't click on, so tell me. Um, he is the guy that tells Samantha she needs to trim her bush and she gets offended. And then okay. she's like, honestly, it's like a jungle down there. And then she like shaves his uh, bush and he goes, wow, my dick looks huge. <laughs> and so I think they fought in the cab, like for a cab. But yeah, one of Samantha's conquests. Got it. This guy. I, there's another Sex of the City down the line that I'm going to yes, point out to you. That's okay. why I said it was jam-packed. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's like, well, good thing you're here. Stabler's like, we need help, your help calming your wife down. And uh, the guy's like, yeah, story of my life. She's apparently been having a tough time because being a mom is hard. Um, but these guys are like, I wish she would just chill out. And um, the husband reveals that this is the first time Michelle has been out of the house with Emma. So yeah, she, six weeks she's been stuck in the house with a newborn. And Stabler is trying to tell the husband uh, that his wife is probably going through some postpartum depression. And he's like, yeah, whatever. If I thought she'd hurt the baby, I'd take her away. But that's like also very much not the point. And I think this is another way where SVU is ahead of its time. Like this is 2001. We're talking about postpartum depression on a network show. I don't really think that they were doing that a lot at that point. So bravo to SVU. Um, and in the next scene, they're downloading Craig and it seems like they're talking about Michelle, like how Michelle could be the one who got rid of her baby in a postpartum depression-fueled uh, break of some sort. And Cragen's like, would she have been rational enough to plant the clothes? And Stabler's like, I can't rule it out. And it's like, actually, yes, you can rule it out. The stock boy saw her with the baby right there and then was there two seconds later when she was screaming. That's hardly a window of time to plant baby clothes at a DMV office down the street. So I really think you can rule that shit out right now, but I digress. Uh, Cragen thinks it could just have also been someone desperate for a baby who just grabbed the baby. And he tells Stabler, go back to the mom and figure it out. And then Stabler tries to, you know, commiserate parent to parent with Michelle about how hard it is. And Michelle agrees. She's like, it is hard. But she's like, I'm so blessed to have Emma and I love her so much. Like, there's absolutely no confession, no breakdown happening here for Michelle. Now they've got some kind of mobile unit that's happening that they brought to be right outside the grocery store. And they're sending out all these APBs for Emma all over the place. And Munch is like, all we found was a woman with a suitcase in her shopping cart. And they're like, go check the tapes. And it's like, why was this not the very first move? Before we accuse the sad mom, why did we not go straight to the, gro the grocery store security tapes? But anyway, Finn's with the security guard and he goes, someone's watching this all day. And the guy goes, this is not a Vegas casino. And I thought that was funny. <laughs> like, no, nobody's like watching the grocery store security cameras like a hawk to see if anyone's stealing cucumbers. Um, so they see a woman um, swoop by Michelle's cart, grab the baby on tape, but they can't see her face. It's like from behind. And that obviously clears Michelle. And then they get another camera angle on the exit and they see this lady wheeling a suitcase out of the store. So it's like, yeah, the baby is in there, I guess. I don't know how she went to the DMV office to, to drug the baby. I don't know. It's a, a little bit confusing of an episode. It's only season three. I don't know if they've got the well-oiled machine happening yet. But um, And now we're back in the SVU mobile home and Cragen's like, all right, let's rule out the mom for the moment. And it's like, maybe forever. And then they found the shop where this lady bought the suitcase and she paid with a credit card under the name Susan Young and she works at social services. 
So now we've tracked down Susan Young in a park and she's like, yeah, my purse was stolen this morning. Um, and from the substance abuse center where I work and they show her a pic of the person walking out of the store with a suitcase and she's like, ugh, Alicia. And she's like, Alicia's one of my clients. She's a crack addict and she was doing really well. She'd stopped using since she got pregnant. She had the baby last week and it was stillborn. And so they're like, do you know where she lives? And she's like, of course I do. This is SVU. I have her address memorized. And so now we're at Alicia's apartment, which looks kind of nice. And so they think, wow, she's got a job or she's got a sugar daddy, you know? And then Stabler's like, she's back on the pipe after he finds, you know, her like little box of drug paraphernalia. And then Liv finds a stack of hundreds in the closet. So it's like thousands and thousands of dollars. And Alicia comes home, sees the cops and makes a run for it. So they run down the stairs after her. They grab her. They demand to know where the baby is. She says she gave Emma away. She had to. She promised them a baby and her baby died. And they're like, who did you promise the baby to? And she's like, a lawyer, Mark Sanford. I gave the baby to him in Chelsea. So now the detectives bust into this brownstone in Chelsea where they hear a baby crying. They go upstairs. A woman comes to the door and she's on the phone with someone saying the police are here. But then... um, she tells them, oh, I was on the phone with the police. And Olivia's like, really? Let me check your phone. And she did not dial 911 last. So the woman is lying. She was calling someone else. And she's like, I just take care of the babies. And then they find this nursery filled with cribs. And by the way, this brownstone has nothing in it. It's like very sparse, empty brownstone, except for like a room full of cribs and a woman taking care of them. So that definitely It's seems- like she doesn't even get to sit down at work. Yeah. Like there's not one extra chair. Yeah, I don't even know if there's like a microwave to her to make a little ramen. Like this place is very empty. And um, she's like, all these babies were given up for adoption. This is just kind of like a way station and before they head off to their new place. And this is all on the up and up. And Elliot goes around looking at all the babies and then he IDs Emma from a photo and they arrest the caretaker woman for kidnapping. So now... At the hospital, Elliot and Olivia are downloading Daddy Cragen, and they're like, two girls, one boy is what we found. They're in excellent health, well taken care of. The brownstone was rented to Adoptions Incorporated, very creative, and Mark Sanford signed the lease, someone named Mark Sanford. So they don't know who... So like for somebody who is maybe doing something illegal, this man's not really covering up very much. Like everything's under his name. Everyone knows his name. It's just Mark Sanford. And um, they don't really know who these other two babies belong to, but they're going to find out. So Michelle and Tony get Emma back and it's a very rare happy ending for anyone on Law & Order SVU. And Tony, you know, side talks to Stabler and goes, Michelle's going to see a doctor. So, wow. Postpartum depression advocate Elliot Stabler, everyone. He's done it. Um, and now Munch and Finn are interrogating the caretaker. And she's like, I'm an RN. I was hired to look after the babies. And they're like, You didn't think this empty brownstone was kind of weird? And she's like, They're just chilling there before their adopted parents get them. This is all fine. Doc, Mr. Sanford is a saint, she says. And they're like, Okay, that's very cute. Now give him up or you're an accessory. And she's like, Okay, his office is in Kew Gardens. So she's very um, loyal for about two seconds. And then she gives him right up, um, as she should. Well, also, if she thinks that nothing is wrong, why not give him up? You know what I mean? Like, exactly. Bring him in here, clear everything up. This is all normal. Yeah. So they catch him, uh, this guy Sanford, leaving his house with his briefcase and like a file box put, that he's putting into his car. And he immediately is a lawyer. So he's like, I'm not talking to anyone without my lawyer. So they arrest him for kidnapping. And this actor is named Bruce Altman. He has a, 111 credits. I've seen him. He was a very big character on Mr. Robot. 
And he's also been in Orange is the New Black. And this is his only SVU, but he's been on seven episodes of Original Recipe as well. So I just thought that felt like he was one of these you see him everywhere kind of guys. Um, so he's now talking in interrogation with his lawyer. And he's like, I've never put an abducted child up for adoption. And his lawyer is our old pal Josh Payas, a.k.a. Hank Abraham. But in this episode, he's Robert Sorensen. So he plays, he does three episodes as Sorensen and then he does seven episodes of SVU later as Hank Abraham. And I think he looks better with gray hair. Oh, I yeah, mean, yeah. He's like a better gray daddy. Like him as a brunette here was very off-putting to me. Yeah, yeah. He looked weird and young. And yeah, so many men just age. They look better as they age. Um, and so he's like, listen, Alicia gave a baby to me two years ago. She t hit me up again when she was pregnant again. I had no reason to believe that the baby wasn't hers. Like I've had one successful adoption with her. Um, and they're like, oh yeah. And then you also like load her up with cash so that she'll give you her babies or whatever. And he's like, that's for expenses and medical fees. And they're like, he gets a very nominal fee from the parents, a very modest fee. And it's like $20,000 per couple. So this man is getting paid. Um, and then Cabot's watching this all go down across the one-way glass as usual. And she's like, I don't know, guys, kidnapping is a stretch. We can't prove he knew what Alicia did. And if you prove he sold Emma, it's grand larceny. And Cragen's like, um, this is a person, not a Lexus. What are you talking about? And Cabot's like, look, we can hold him for six days on the kidnapping. Can you make a case in that time? So off we go to try to make that happen. Finn and Munch are, to quote Cragen, surfing the web. And they're on Sanford's website that looks like a Craigslist for adoption. It's like, here's a little blue-eyed girl that just wants to make you her mommy or whatever. It's, it's weird. And Finn asks Munch if he's ever considered adoption. And Munch goes, the kindest thing I could ever do for a kid is not adopt. So I love that Munch is proudly child-free. Love that for him. Um, Finn is running down Sanford's history. Um, and Munch has a ledger of Sanford's and reads out all these babies' birthdays. And I don't know why. He's just like reading birthdays out loud. And one is a baby boy born January 2nd, 1989. And that piques Cragen's interest. And Cragen's like, how do I find out this baby's name? They figure out the corresponding page. And he's like, Stephen Talmadge. And Cragen looks like he just struck gold and Munch and Finn are just like, nothing's registering for us here, Craig's Like, we don't know what you're talking about. So Cragen takes off. And of course, this is an old case of Cragen's where he remembers the missing baby's birthday exactly. And he's at a diner. It's, it's a diner in the title card. It looks like much more of like a dark sort of restaurant bar, but they're calling it a diner. Um, and he's giving Munch and therefore us, the viewers, the rundown. He's talking about how in 89, a woman named Jennifer Talmadge was found murdered in her apartment. Her four-week-old son, Stephen, was taken from the crib and never found. Both the case of the mom and the child are still open. And his old buddy, Max Grevy, was the cop on the case. And he worked it really hard until he was murdered on the job in 91. And so now Munch is like, wow, this case has been kicking your ass for 12 years. And Cragen's like, I just know Stephen is still alive. And this is a huge lead after 12 years. And he's like, yeah, Jennifer Talmadge's parents call, used to call me once a year on Stephen's birthday for updates, but the call stopped three years ago. So he's like, Munch, I really need your help with the case. And Munch is like, all right. So Cragen shows up at, the, at a front door. And when it opens, the woman goes, oh my Lord, she is so happy to see Captain Cragen. And this is an actress named Celia Weston, who you've seen in everything. I think most recently she was on The Thing About Pam on NBC with Renee Zellweger. And uh, their house is really big and old and like handcrafted look. It's like a cool sort of like, it looks like it would be in like Vermont or like Massachusetts or something, but it's probably in 
up uh, Hudson River Valley, New York or something. And so they bring Craig in upstairs to show him Stephen's room. And they're like, we celebrate all his birthdays. We buy him presents every Christmas. And the room is like a full toy store. Uh, store. Like they've never lost hope. They've got this whole room with like bikes and all kinds of great shit for Stephen. Like, should he ever reappear? So now in this holding cell, Cragen and Cabot are talking to Sanford and his lawyer again. And Cragen is very antsy. He's like, you killed Jennifer and you sold Stephen. And Cabot is like, let me offer you a deal if you cooperate. And Cragen's like, the deal's good for 10 seconds. And the lawyer's like, you're bluffing. And Cragen's like, nah, I'm going to nail your ass to the wall. And then he bounces out of there. And Sanford and the lawyer look kind of concerned, but it's like they barely gave them a second to consider a deal. And then Cabot chases Craig Craig out and is like, what the fuck, dude? Like, I could have used that kidnapping charge as leverage if you just hadn't gone all macho cop on me. Like, what the hell? And Cabot's like, you're too close to this case. And he's like, damn right. So this is a Craig episode. This is a Dan Florek heavy episode. Um, So Munch is working the case. And he's looked at the file and he's like, most interviews just said Jennifer was a great person. No leads. There was only one set of prints at the scene and there are no matches in, you know, CODIS or whatever does fingerprints. And uh, Cragen checks in with Elliot and Olivia on the other babies. They're all set to join their new homes. Sanford did everything by the book. The parents consented to the adoption. All the paperwork is good. Like he's Everything's on the up and up. They do find out that Sanford is triple dipping. He basically tells three families he's got a baby for them. And then he tells two of the families the mom changed her mind and keeps the money. And that's $30,000 per couple. So he's making 90K per baby. And this is in 2001. And it is fucked up. Like, I do have a friend going through the adoption process right now. And it is really crazy because you pour a ton of money into it. And then you have, like, literally no insurance. Like, it can just So he is shady. Work out. That's, yeah, he's so he shady. He's not putting up, I don't think he's kidnapping babies or killing people per se, but he is shady for sure. And it just sucks that there's already no insurance for parents that are trying to adopt in the adoption world. And then to have lawyers be greedy and dishonest is, it's like an extra hurdle to becoming a parent for these people. It just sucks. Um, So... They find out that none of these parents snitch on him because they don't want to get blackballed by other baby brokers. And it's just really fucked how the whole adoption system is even working. But um, Finn finds Sanford's old phone records and Cragen's like, all right, everybody dig in. Just like handing out thick-ass folders of phone numbers to everybody. And Munch uh, is like, well, there was something about Jennifer's roommate, Rebecca, in the file where... Grievy was supposed to file up with him, but then never did. And so Munch heads out to Westchester County to talk to Rebecca, this roommate. This seems insane that you would not talk to her college roommate. Um, And she said that Jennifer had one boyfriend, a guy named Rob. And Rebecca knew he was trouble when he walked in. I'm not allowed to sing that, but I think you guys know what I'm saying. And she had seen him walking around campus with another girl. So she knew he was a uh, you know, two-timer. But she was like, Jen was naive. He was her first. They went out for two weeks before he broke up with her. And then they're like, did he give a reason? And she goes, guys never do. Okay. Um, And then she says, did you know she was pregnant? She's like, yeah, she couldn't really hide it. And she knew Rob was the father. And she tells them, yeah, his name was Rob Cook. So this woman has all this fucking information and has just been sitting there for 12 years just knowing who the father of this murdered woman's baby is. And they definitely would have found out who the father was in the first investigation. Like, they would have figured that out somehow. Emails, phone calls. Like, they would have figured out who impregnated her because he would have been a suspect. So it's really... Well, they only dated for two weeks. 
Yeah. So if she's pregnant nine months later, it's like, yeah, they should have talked to the roommate, but it wasn't like And the roommate's the only one that knows about Rob? I don't know. It just doesn't seem like- Two weeks. They only dated two weeks. I know, but you're in college and you're like, you've got like a, but I don't know. I just feel like you wouldn't, only one, not one friend would know that. Like a bunch of my friends would know if I was dating someone for two weeks or even if I hooked up with someone one night, a bunch of my friends would know probably. I don't know. Um, But I just think that this, something about who the paternity of a father would have come up in the investigation and it's just kind of strange. But Rebecca said, um, oh yeah, did, they're like, oh, did she ever let the father know? And Rebecca goes, yes, she sent him a letter. So now Munch and Cragen journey back to the Burbs where they find Rob Cook playing catch with his sons on a grassy lawn. It's very Pleasantville. And the actor is David Aaron Baker, who's playing the father. And he's been on another SVU called Infected. I don't recall that right away, who he was or what that episode is. But he's a law and order. He's a Dick Wolf standby. He's been on Original Recipe, Criminal Intent, Trial by Jury, and two SVUs. So this man is in Dick Wolf's Rolodex. And he was also in an episode of Sex and the City as Ted um, in an episode called Secret Sex. And he's a sports doctor who Miranda fucks and he likes spanking videos. But you knew that, right? Yes, I do remember him. I just remember her punching him by accident. I just remember that part. I don't know if I remember the spanking videos. Um, So they want to see a birth certificate for his son because his son is around the age that Stephen Talmadge would be. And Rob Cook says, my wife has it, my ex-wife. She's in Mayapak and we were recently divorced. And they tell him, this is about Jennifer. Her son disappeared and we think you're the father. So now they are in interrogation with him and he's like, yeah, I read about Jennifer in the paper. I didn't think the child was mine. We only slept together like one time. And it's like, I guess you don't know how pregnancy works. And Munch does back me up on that. And he's like, yeah, just takes one time. So um, again, completely to me, unbelievable that they would not have talked to this man, but I guess you're right. It has been nine months and they only dated for a short amount of time. But um, he tell, as just to me, they're saying that this man, Max Grevy, worked this case for years like it was his own child. And so I'm like- Yeah, he should have talked to the roommate. He's yeah. a dumb bitch. But yeah. um, in terms of like lots of people know it or like who it was, it seems like she didn't, have friends and was naive and yeah. I don't know. That makes sense to me, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The roommate of it all does not make sense. It, but like, and I, if I were the roommate, I would have gone to the police and been like, did you guys ever talk to Rob Cook? Like, did you talk to the father of the baby? Like, if my friend from college got murdered, but it also seemed like their friendship was weird because they were like, were you guys close? And she's like, we were roommates. It was weird. Um, So he's like, listen... Jennifer was a rebound girl for me. Like, I was on the outs with my girlfriend, Linda. I did not kill Jennifer. I did not know she was pregnant. I never got a letter. He's like, I broke up with Jennifer because Linda told me she was pregnant. Um, and this guy has clearly never even glanced at a condom. And he says, we got married as soon as the semester was over, and that's Brandon, our son. And that kind of explains why he has this baby that's similar age to the missing boy. So now we're with Melinda, who is swabbing the son, Brandon, while his mom, Linda, is like, oh, do we have to all do this? Like, this is you know, she's that woman who's very much like against finding out who killed someone. And then she bickers with Rob about why, how he couldn't keep it in his pants. And Rob is like, we were kids. Like, you need to let go of this thing that happened 12 years ago. And then Linda refuses the swab and wants an attorney. And then they threaten her with a contempt charge. So she just does it. So... 
back at the precinct. Well, no, uh, she has like a killer line. Hold on, I wrote it down. She goes, I do have contempt for this or something. Plen- yeah, I have plenty of contempt for this. Yeah. Which I thought was fun. Yeah, I looked her up and was like, oh, she seems like a kind of like a good, plays a good bitch. Like, who is she? And I don't think she's really done much more acting, but. Back at the precinct, the DNA has proven that Brandon is the son of Linda and Rob and has nothing to do with Jennifer. And then Finn finds something, um, Stephen Talmadge's adoption papers signed by his mother. And then, so that's a twist. We did not know that Jennifer was even considering giving her baby up for adoption. And now they're like, now it looks like they're signed. And that's what was given to Sanford. So Cragen's talking to Jennifer's parents and they're like, no way, it's impossible. Jennifer had considered adoption early on, but had changed her mind when we offered her financial support, emotional support, said we would watch Steven while she, so she could finish school, like kind of, you know, a perfect parental reaction to a young pregnancy. So when they show the adoption papers to the parents, the parents were like, that is not her signature. There's no way in hell my parents know what my signature looks like. Do you think your parents know what your signature looks like, Lisa? No. Yeah. They would never be able to be like, that's not it. (laughs) They would have to for sure bring out a passport, which is what they do. They get Jennifer's passport to prove that this is not her signature, not even close. Back in a holding cell with Sanford, um, Cragen shows him the forged signature and tells him, like, you're fucked. Like, this is not a legal adoption. And he's like, I did not forge this signature. And Cabot's like, yeah, you're actually just a criminal who defrauds couples desperate for babies. So a jury will buy that you did do this. So you're definitely screwed. And he nods to his lawyer like, all right, let's make a deal. And Cabot's like, okay, here's what's on the table. No jail time and you pay back all the couples you defrauded. And Cragen adds, and you give me Stephen Talmadge. And he says, okay, a woman came to me with a baby claiming to be his mother. She had the original birth certificate. I had no idea she was a fake. And then I saw Jennifer's pick in the paper, but I couldn't risk going. And they're like, but you couldn't risk going to the police because you're a dirtbag and a criminal. And he was like, yeah, pretty much. So like... You could have left him at a firehouse or something, but instead you like put him up for adoption when you when he had family out there and you just wanted money. So it's pretty fucked up. Um, Cragen demands the adopted family's information. So now again, we're in the burbs. This is a very in and out of the city episode. Uh, Cragen rings the doorbell and we're at a, the little sign on the door says like, welcome to the Blakes. So we're at the Blakes house. And inside there's like a bunch of boys in baseball uniforms because apparently that's what everyone's doing out there is playing baseball, America's pastime. And um, the mom comes downstairs and is like, boys, Tyler, go outside with your friends and welcomes the cops in because I guess in this universe, everyone loves the cops. And um, Cragen looks at Tyler like they share a look when he leaves. And so like, yeah, this is clearly Steven. And the mom confirms that Tyler was adopted by Mark Sanford. And after they tell her, she is really, really upset. She's like, what am I going to tell my husband? What am I going to tell Tyler? And then we see that Tyler's standing outside the kitchen and he's listening to this whole thing. And he looks like his entire world just blew up because it basically did. And... um, She calls for Tyler to come into the kitchen and he's like, I'm not going. And they're like, you're not in any trouble. And his parents are like, we'll go together. Or his mom says, we'll go together. So it's just really sad because this kid just seems like he's living a nice little life. And now these cops blow in to ruin everything. And so now we've got Cragen and Rob Cook are looking at Tyler through the one-way glass and he's confirming to Rob, like, yes, Tyler is your biological son. And Cragen's like, he's had a good life. 
they raised him as their own child. And Rob's like, but I'm his father. He belongs with me. I never would have abandoned him. And I just, I sort of hate this guy, even though they try to act like all the sides are right on this one. I don't like this man. I hate him too. And there is a good point later on the stand where I'm like, okay, good point. But like, let him live with the his parents and then you can see him when you want yes. and you can hang out and be a part of his life and grow a relationship. But just to like steal this kid from his life is insane. Yeah. His friends, his home, his parents. Like, I hate this man too. Especially like the age of 12, like 12 to 18. Like those years are so like- It's selfish. To have no relationship. It's so selfish. Like it's, it's like really- Like he's not thinking of the kid at all. He's no. thinking of himself. No, because it's like- I don't know. I'm judging that they're all in New York suburbs. It's not like anyone lives in across the country or anything. You could definitely arrange some kind of visitation schedule where you like build a relationship like you're saying. It's crazy. Yeah, go to medieval times, go to his games, <laughs> yeah. have the boys do play dates. Like you could be a part of his life. You don't have to snatch him as your own. I hate him. And just like, and also the 2v1 aspect of moving in with two brothers is so like fucked up too. So, um... Cragen is explaining what's going on to Tyler at slash Steven's adoptive parents. And they're like, we didn't do anything wrong. Like, he's our son. We've raised him. And Cragen says, yeah, but Tyler's father never consented to the adoption. So it's nullified. Like, that's, it's just, that's it. Um, and they're really, really sad. And they're like, you can't take him away from us. He's only ever known our home and us as his family. How can you do this to us? And like, honestly, Cragen... I'm just mad that your old pal Grievy didn't do enough to find out like who the dad was because this all could have been avoided. But 12 years. Cragen, <laughs> I know. Cragen and Cabot are walking. So you bet your ass they're talking. And Cabot's saying she can't find him a foster home this late. So she's going to have to put him in a shelter, which Cragen calls a hellhole. And he's like, why can't he just go with his maternal grandparents who have a right of natural guardianship? And Cabot's like, the law does not give automatic custody to grandparents. And then Cragen like flips out on Alex and is like, don't think about the law. Think about the kid. And she's like, don't you think I am? It's like very tense with Cragen and Cabot, as it has been the whole episode. And, um, you know, Cabot's like, everybody wants a piece of Tyler right now. Maybe the best place is for him to be somewhere neutral. And Cragen's like, tell that to his grandparents. And I also don't think somewhere neutral is like a shelter that Cragen describes as really shitty and horrible. Um, but the grandparents are now talking to Cragen and they're really upset. And they're like, we lost our daughter. And now you're saying we can't have our grandson. And Cragen's like, not unless a judge says you can, but you can apply for temporary custody. And he breaks the news that Tyler's biological dad, Rob, is also probably going to claim his parental rights and that his rights supersede yours. And they're just like so sad. They're like, Jennifer was our only child. This is like our only, you know, family. And she's, the, the grandmother is pissed at Cragen for giving them hope and then taking it away. So now... Tyler's talking to Cragen. They're having like a sweet little outdoor moment. And he's just like, what happens to me now? And he's like, you'll be in a temporary home until the judge decides. And he's like, I just want to go home to my parents, like to the Blakes. Like, I don't really want any of this to be happening. And he's like, I don't care that the adoption was illegal. My parents love me and they've always been good to me. And Cragen's like, I didn't want to take you away from your family, but I was just doing my job. I was just following the law, but my job is also to protect you. Do you understand? And Tyler's like, okay, but like, I'm still, I'm still annoyed. And then Cragen tells him that his maternal grandparents want to meet him. 
So right before they go in, Tyler's like, do I have to hug them? And I'm like, good instinct, Tyler. Old people do smell very weird. And so then they open the door and the grandparents are standing right there. And they're like, it's so, it's like a very sweet moment. Like the, their eyes are welled up with tears and the grandmother calls him Steven and he's like, my name is Tyler. And they're like, okay, hello, Tyler. And it's just really emotional. And the parent grandparents are crying and Tyler's like, please don't cry. Like, Yeah, really good acting. Yeah. And the poor kid is like, has so many adults, he's carrying the emotions of so many adults right now, like these grandparents and all these people, and it's just like a lot for a 12-year-old. Um, so Cabot knocks on Cragen's door. They basically make up. They start to play nice and work together, and uh, Tyler is going to need a law guardian, Cabot says, and she's like, what if I volunteer? And Cragen's like, yeah, but the law favors the biological parents, which is true. And then Cabot says, the law also says that the kid is old enough and mature enough to decide who he wants to live with. And so if I'm his attorney, I'll fight for what he wants, which is to live with the Blakes. So now... Dun dun, we're in court and Huang is testifying that Tyler is an articulate, intelligent 12-year-old, well-adjusted, good at school, lots of friends. He is definitely the product of a happy home. And he says, they're like, oh, would you recommend him going to live with his biological dad right now? And he's like, actually, no, that would be basically like him waking up and hearing that his parents had died in a car crash. Like it would be a sudden traumatic loss and that could lead at this age with this kind of trauma, it could lead to behavior problems, depression, a lot of, you know, bad things down the line. And Huang is like, I do not recommend at all that he go live with his bio dad. And next uh, on the stand, Mrs. Blake, the adoptive mother, is on the stand showing a photo album of Tyler's milestones, like, you know, talking about his first birthday. We had 100 people. It's like very sweet. And he's, she says, he's the center of our lives. He gets love. We don't have a lot of money, but he does not want for anything. And she's terrified of losing him and says, please don't punish us for someone else's crime. So now Rob's lawyer cross-examines and is like, but can you imagine how Rob feels losing all those years? And it's like, no, because he has two other sons and he was literally walking around in his 20s jizzing in every woman on campus. And he doesn't, it doesn't really seem like he cares who he knocked up. And then he says, well, if your child was lost, but taken in by a family and raised well, and then you found him, wouldn't you want him back? Is that what you meant by the good point, Lisa? Yeah. Yeah. But now that you say it out loud, he wasn't trying to find him. Yeah. He didn't know he existed. Yes. But so that it's a is little, a it's a point. different situation. Yeah. But so she has to say yes to that question, even though it's killing her, the mom. She's like, yes, I would want him back. And so it's very sad. Um, and then Rob is on the stand being like, listen, I'm rich. I can provide for him. He'll have brothers his own age. I don't know why that matters. Um, Tyler is my flesh and blood, which I just find that like very arrogant. Like just that you feel like because he's your, like he's your flesh and blood, but like it was like from a, relationship you didn't even care about. Like, you didn't... It doesn't sound like you cared when she was murdered that much either. Like, you just saw the pic in the paper. Like, I don't know. And he's like... He admits that these adoptive parents did just as good of a job as he could have done. And he's like, it's... Imagine how hard it is for me to put them through this. Like, he's kind of making it all about him. I just do not like this man. And it's... And then I wrote in my notes the same thing as what you were saying, Lisa. Like, have visitation. Let him stay in the life he's used to. And um, you just finished a bitter custody battle with your ex. That's what uh, Cabot asks him. And then she goes... 
what if your wife had won sole custody like she was suing you for and you weren't able to see your kids whenever you wanted? And he goes, yeah, it would crush me. And then he apologizes to the Blakes on the stand. Why doesn't the kid get to decide? It's like, that's annoying to me too. Like, yeah. if you're claiming to care about the kid and he doesn't want to go with you, why don't you just leave it at that? It's like about this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think the grandparents would be chill. I think the grandparents would just be happy to be in the uh, in his life and not like, yes. you must move into this room. Like, I think they would be right. chill. Um, right. So it's just this, like, guy who's doing this all. Yeah, I hate, I just hate this situation. It's terrible. Um, so in Cragen's office, Cabot says this case is ripping her guts out because it's all good people. Again, Cabot, I don't really think that Rob is a great person. And Elliot... And Olivia walk in and explain that all of Stanford's adoptions have been legit. There are no stolen babies that they can find. So this does seem like, even though this man is a crook, he's not like a kidnapper. And then Olivia's got a nice little piece of scoop. She's like, you know what? Linda, Rob's ex-wife, gave birth to her son a month after Jennifer gave birth. And her hospital roommate was a client of Sanford's. And she said that she recommended Linda to Sanford. How do they know this? I don't know how Olivia would have possibly tracked down the hospital roommate of Linda and that she remembered what she said to her 12 years ago, but that's what's happened, I guess. And they compared the signature on the adoption papers to Linda's signature on the DNA release forms, and Cragen's like, let's get Linda in here. So something's going on. The next scene is very classically lit, dark interrogation scene. Like, Linda looks like she's truly sitting under, like, one of those old-timey, solitary, swinging light bulbs. And she's like, why do I care if my ex gets to keep his love child? She's very cocky, and she's very bitchy. And Cragen accuses her of intercepting the letter that Jennifer sent informing Rob that he is the father of her baby. And uh, they say, why did you ask about an adoption attorney? And she goes, I knew Rob was cheating and I didn't know he'd propose. So I just like wanted to have my options of maybe, you know, getting rid of this baby. Um, even though Rob says, I broke up with Jennifer because, you know, Linda was pregnant. So the timeline of this doesn't really work out because she had her baby a month after Jennifer. And if Jennifer was pregnant in that two weeks, that means Linda couldn't have been pregnant already. Like they'd only been together for two weeks. So Linda, that's this is just impossible, this timeline. I'm Linda sorry. wasn't I, two weeks. No, they were together for two weeks, right? And then they broke up because Linda goes, I'm pregnant. That's impossible. Her baby's a month younger than Linda, than, than Jennifer's. Could she have given birth early? Uh, oh, yeah, I guess it's possible. You're right. I guess it's possible Jennifer gave birth like a month or two early or something. Yeah, that's possible. Okay. I thought I was about to write into IMDb with a strip continuity problem. But... Anyway, so... It is all confusing, this end. Yeah. I mean, I love the twists and turns of it all, but it is um, confusing. Yeah. So Jennifer's signature is on the, these adoption papers. They show it to her and they're like, this is your handwriting. We compared it to, you know, this other signature, like this is yours. So they go, you got the letter. You went to see Jennifer. Something happened and Jennifer was dead. So you impersonated her and you took her baby to Mark Sanford. Cragen goes, just tell me you didn't mean to kill her and I can help you. And she goes, I want a lawyer. So, guilty as fuck. That's exactly what happened. Crazy twist, you know. 
But that's another reason why it's so insane that this guy, oh, he worked this case to the bone. He worked it like, it's like, but you didn't talk to the roommate who would have told you about Rob and you would have found out that there was another woman and there was like other, like either one of them could have been, you know, suspects. So yeah, it's like Craig and your friends sucked. Yeah. And it's also very much me being like, I could be a cop. I've watched a lot of SVU. So who knows how it was really going back in that, uh, in real life, even though this isn't real. Um, So back in court, the judge is like, yeah, this is a very different kind of case for me. Most of the time, nobody wants the kid. And now everybody wants this kid. I like she's, it's rare to see so many people pulling to get one kid. And so um, she's, talks to everybody. She's Wait, like, I was explaining this episode to someone. I wish I remembered who, but they were like, what's it about this kid? <laughs> what does this kid have to offer? <laughs> what's so great about this fucking kid? Yeah. They said he's popular and good, makes good grades. Maybe he's like a sweet little boy. Who knows? Um, so the judge is like, Rob, you're good. Blake's, you're good. But the law recognizes the biological rights of the parent. So she awards custody to Rob Cook. So Cabot was just full of shit when she said that the court lets Tyler decide. That's just like not true. <laughs> like, well, I think the judge gets to oversee anything, I guess. I don't know. It's fucked up. The judge is fucked. Like, yeah. Like, I think that there also should have been a part where Tyler took the stand to tell the judge what he wanted. But also, I don't know, like, I am a CASA, so it's my, like, responsibility to write a letter. I write a report to a judge, like, every six months saying this is what she wants. And if it was something like this, it's like, usually, I feel like what I've seen in family court is, like, the judge takes into account what the child wants, especially if they're of an age where they can decide. Obviously, an eight-year-old might be like, I want to go live with my grandma because she just lets me do whatever, you know? But like a 12-year-old can say, this is where I want to be. So it's it is it's like kind of surprising to me, this verdict. Also, not covered at any point, now he has to live with the two sons of his mother's killer? Whoa. Like, are you kidding me? He has to just be there with his two brothers and be like, hey, so remember when your mom killed my mom and then it ruined my whole fucking life because I got adopted and then I had to come back to you guys? Like, this would not pass. Like, to me, this would not pass like home screening or psychological screening. If that woman was on trial for the murder or uh, like ended up getting arrested, like getting convicted, this would be considered, I think, like psychologically unwell circumstances. No, I hope Mr. Cook comes to his senses. Yeah. So the Blakes are crushed when the judge reads the verdict and the uh, Tyler runs to them and hugs them. The grandparents look sad. Everyone is bummed. It's not nice. It's not great. And then Cabot's walking out with Craig and she's like, I really prefer prosecuting. At least then I know who the bad guy is. And Rob and the Blakes are standing on the courthouse steps and they're at least talking. So it sounds like everyone's going to have a relationship with Tyler, whether or not he's living under anyone's roof. They're all, they're, it's not like Rob is saying, okay, say goodbye to your parents. You're never going to see them again. And um, Craig and Tyler like share this sort of sad look. And it kind of looks like Tyler's like, what's up, dude? I thought you were going to help me. <laughs> and like, that's like the look kind of. And then they just, that's it. And it's very sad. And then... That is Dick Wolf. Maybe there'll be an episode where Tyler kills Cragen. Yes. And are they going to let him go by Tyler? Are they going to start forcing Steven upon him? I think Tyler. I think Tyler for sure, because it's not like Rob named him that, you know, like his dead mom named him that. I think the grandparents would be the only ones holding on to Steven. 
But yeah, that's that Good episode. episode. For yeah. season three, like to have that many twists and turns and fun stuff. I love, yeah, it's a great yeah. episode. Yeah, totally. Um, right. And I know nothing about the crime that this is based on. And I, I like to do that on purpose. I leave my Lisa crimes. Uh, I like to keep myself virginal for those. That's fucking sick, dude. <laughs> we'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Um, This is mostly based on a crime, um, a murder, bad, bad man named John Robinson. And of course, he was seen as the ideal family man. I mean, all these articles are just like, he coached his four children's various sports teams in the Kansas City area. Sunday school teacher, volunteered as a scoutmaster. Um, He, you know, he loved to mow his grass and grill burgers. People were like, he smiled, he laughed, he told stories, good handshake, congenial type of guy. This is like literally also the description of BTK. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Immaculate yard, elaborate decorations for Hollywood. Holidays, which obviously made him the most perfect con man manipulator of all time. Um, do not trust anyone with a well-manicured lawn. That is a murderer <laughs> waiting to happen. Any dude who's like, I love my lawn, that's a killer. Check, check his shed. So he um, actually went to prison in 1987 for fraud. And then he got out in 1993. And then in June 2000 is when authorities uncovered bodies of multiple women in barrels, Dexter style, on his farm and in a storage locker. Barrel girls. That season fucked me up. girls. That season was really fucked up. It was scary. Because people are like, oh, after the Trinity killer, Dexter was bad. And it's like, no, it's not. I mean... It had season five is still good. It's well, still Julia good Stiles, because Julia Stiles is like a living victim. Like the Trinity Killer didn't really have living victims. Like, and it was yeah. and what Johnny Lee Miller. I don't know. It was I thought it was good and the barrel of it all. And just like having a group of men get together to murder together. It's just like it was scary and believable. Yeah. And like, uh-oh. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so then there was barrels. Um, and one of the women, this is how it all ties together, was found um that she had a baby girl at the time of her murder, and the baby was alive. And now a teenager living with John Robinson's brother. <gasps> no. Um, an investigator who worked the case, Rick Roth, said he was one of the most dangerous criminals that he had ever encountered. And he said that to ABC News. Whoa. So this is a done-done to, like, the max. And now we'll travel back in time and learn about this case. So this fucker was married in 1964. And he married a woman named Nancy Joe Lynch. And he started working at a Chicago hospital. And Nancy Joe then eventually managed the trailer park where they ended up living, which I think was helpful to him to get away with stuff. But I don't know. So in 1984, um, Robinson put up a help wanted ad in the paper for a sales rep job and hired 19-year-old Paula Godfrey and let her know that she would be traveling to Texas for some training. And she disappeared. And the training was for screen printing. 
So I guess in the 80s screen printing, you had to leave the state. Like you couldn't learn how to screen print. Um, (laughs) So Godfrey's father confronted Robinson, who said he didn't know what he was talking about. But then right after that interaction, letters signed by his daughter started arriving saying she was safe and fine. So then in 1984, around Christmas time, he then started an organization called Kansas City Outreach Program to help downtrodden women. Is that a word we still use today? Downtrodden? I I don't know. (laughs) Sad, sad women with no luck. So he went to several hospitals and social workers and like told them about his program that he's starting. And Karen Gaddis is a former social worker. And she said that he explained the program worked with young pregnant women or women with newborns to help that get them back on their feet and a place to live. And after Christmas, he called and said, guess what? I got a girl. Um, I got a girl from the women's shelter in Kansas City. And he met with her and she agreed to go into his program. So that woman, her name is Lisa Stassi, and she was 19 years old at the time. And there's another social worker named Sharon Turner Jackson. So her and Gaddis both were like, yeah, we were definitely suspicious of his desire to find needy white women with children right before Christmas, like the night before Christmas. (sighs) So they definitely were like, okay, this is weird, but... I guess not weird enough. And it seemed like Lisa and John connected. So he put up Lisa and and her four-month-old daughter, Tiffany, up at the Roadway Inn Hotel. And he promised uh, to help her get to Texas to train for the silk screening job. Like, everyone wanted a silk screen. Like, I don't understand. (laughs) So he also offered her $800 a month for living expenses and promised to find her a babysitter. And so he really promised her a lot of stuff that obviously got her excited to, like, come stay. So then cut to one day, Sassy's family got a call from Lisa, and she was hysterically crying. And she was telling them that she had to sign four pieces of paper, and they're like, don't sign anything, don't do it. And she said, here they come now, and she hung up. And that was the last time that her family ever heard from her. But then they received a letter that was supposedly from Lisa, but they knew it was fucking weird um, because she sucked at typing and she wouldn't have typed a letter. They're like, she wouldn't, this isn't her. Um, And I think computers were like pretty rare in the 80s. So I don't know. Yeah. So that was 84 and now it's 87 and it's time for like his fraud uh, charges and prison time. And we'll get into more details about the fraud. So, but right before his arrest, another woman in her mid-20s disappeared named Catherine Clampett. So that's what happened right before he got into jail. Now he's in prison, right? And he starts a relationship with the prison librarian named Beverly Bonner, who is married to the prison doctor. So he's just like this master manipulator. So he starts dating the librarian. And once he left prison, Bonner left the prison, divorced her husband to be with Robinson. But also it's like, where is Nancy Joe? They are still married. So he's still married to Nancy Joe. He is having this like affair with this prison librarian he met in prison while being a criminal. Jeez. And also had this other relationship right before with this woman named Catherine and also is helping single women. Okay. Whatever. So Bonner went missing, obviously. Like, is anyone surprised? Oh Bonner is missing, but he continued to collect her monthly alimony checks and then continued to sought out other women. Um, the authorities, like, once all the bodies are found, think that Bonner was died in 1994, but they can't really be sure. Now, then the internet happened, and he got five computers. And he had a ton of aliases, and he started searching for sex in the BDSM community. 
Um, so he was this balding grandfather, but also was advertising himself as a sadist looking for love slaves. And his wife, Nancy, was just like in the next room typing away, like while he was typing away, searching for victims. She was just living her life, like not really suspicious oh, at all. God. Like kind of, you know, whatever, didn't care where all this money was coming from, from all these checks he's stealing, whatever. Uh, yeah, like how'd you get these five computers? We live in a trailer park. <laughs> So, in 1997, he met Isabella Lewicka. Um, and she was a young Polish immigrant and art student. Uh, do I hear another screen printing coming on? Okay, but a young Polish immigrant art student, she was living in Indiana, and he just was trying to convince her to come to Kansas and to be his submissive, and she disappears as well. And he, like, basically, he had this whole thing where he's like, I'm rich, I travel a lot, I'll take care of everything, just come be my slave and I'll pay for everything. And, okay, so this is where it's like, I just don't, I understand when you're desperate and you need help, but, like, he said, listen, you're going to be so busy, I need you to sign some blank pieces of paper. And it's like, wouldn't you not do that? I don't know. It's like, yeah. wouldn't you question it? And it, you can't, like think how you're going to act in these fucked up situations. And maybe it's like, oh, this is too good to be true. Like, yeah, I get like someone to help pay for me and I get to work and like fu get fucked. I don't know. Like, hell yeah. But he would later obviously send these letters to women's families posing as them. So the relatives didn't think they'd been killed. This reminds me of at my school, I think maybe my elementary, my middle school, you were allowed to write the note yourself as long as your parents signed it, like to get out of a homework or get out of whatever. And I would go, dad, can I have your autograph? I would like pretend like I was collecting autographs of everyone in the family and then like write a note above it. I was a con person. Anyway, I think it only worked like one time. No, that's sweet though. That's like <laughs> definitely a little bit different. <laughs> And also, like, I understand that the times were different. So, like, we didn't have constant communication with our families, but, or these are different types of people, but, like, also just sending a letter would be strange. Like, if I'm used to talking to my child and suddenly I get just these letters without anything, yeah. but they had time to call, like, they had time to write, but not call, like, that would just be suspicious. Yeah. It, it would just not, it's not normal. But, like I said, they didn't, it, it's not like everyone had computers and phones at the time. Right. So now it's 1999. We're in Newport, Michigan. Um, and Robinson scams someone named Suzette Troughton, uh, who is 28. So he's he moving around the country with all this? Well, she no, he's convincing people to come to Kansas. Oh, got it. Okay. So he's from Illinois. He works in Chicago and stuff. But then um, we're actually going to get to it. So he lived in Kansas, but he went back and forth and committed crimes in Kansas and Missouri and played a lot of jurisdiction games to uh, continue to, like, keep getting out of crimes. Gotcha. And so he, like, played the system to keep getting away with crimes. But then at the end, it fucked him because he had to do two trials, one in Kansas and one in Missouri Ooh. for all of his crimes. So he thought he was, like, being so slick, but... Then he ended up getting fucked at the end okay. um, because of it. But yeah, he lived in Olath, Kansas in this trailer park that his wife managed. Gotcha. And then was convincing people off the internet to come to Kansas because he's rich and he just needed help and he would pay for everything type Gotcha. Vibes. Okay, cool. cool so cool. for Suzette, the scam was not BDSM sex. It was he persuaded her to work as the caretaker for his fake elderly father. In reality, his dad had been dead for a long, long time. But what's so wild about this is she went out there and visited him twice. The job seemed legit. So I don't know what fucking old man he found. Um, he also showed her his mansion and guest house. 
Don't know what these things were, how he did it, whatever. But he made it seem very legit. And she was going to be making $62,000 a year. And she was super excited about it and to use the money to train to become a licensed nurse and then eventually a registered nurse. Um, He picked her up from the airport in a limo. Like, it seemed legit. And then... um, he, you know, she was told that she'd be traveling for a month to start the job. And after she disappeared, her mother started getting emails from her, but she knew something was off because everything was spelled right. And she goes, no, 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 this is not my daughter because everything was spelled right. So she knew something was off. But then the spelling game was continued. But the things that she did spell wrong that was weird was her dog's names. And she would never spell her own dog's names wrong. She loved those fucking dogs. And um, so this disappearance is when everything kind of came crumbling down. So within days, there was a task force because the mom was like, these are not emails from my daughter. She would like, where are these dogs? She would not leave without the, like, you need to figure shit out. Um, So the authorities released the names and in some cases, photos of the women and the baby who disappeared that might have been linked to Robinson. So just as a little recap, there's Paula Godfrey, 19, reported missing in 1984. We have Lisa Stassi, 19, and her five-month-old daughter, Tiffany, in 1985. We have Catherine Clampett, 27, reported missing in 1987. And then Isabella K. Lewicka, 22, missing in 1999. And all of the women were living or staying in Overland Park, Kansas, at the time they vanished. So then they found the dogs. They found Pika and Harry. Um, Suzette's dogs abandoned at the trailer park where Robinson lived. So on March 1st, 2000, they realized that like these abandoned dogs were found at the, the trailer park. And that's the same day that Suzette disappeared. So they found one of the dogs um, adopted already with a new family. And when they called him Pika, his ears perked up and his tail started wagging. So he um, responded to his given name. So they knew um, something was, they were close to something. I know it's a different spelling, but it is the name of the disorder that the kid gets when he licks the lead off the cars in the other episode of SVU. (laughs) That's so funny. I was thinking Pikachu. I was thinking Pika. So then they made Suzette's mom, Carolyn Troughton, a tape recorder. Um, They made her, like, they didn't make it for her. So they gave her this tape recorder um, to call Robinson and uh, to tell her, like, hey, you know, to tell him, like, listen, where's my daughter? And he's like, don't worry, chill out. She left with someone else. Like, it has, you know, she she ditched me. I have no idea where she is. And Carolyn kept pushing him and was like, I think I need to report her to the authorities. And he's like, don't report her missing. I'm sure you'll hear from her soon. And like clockwork, letters started arriving to all the family right after the call. And again, they knew it wasn't her because the dog's names were not spelled correctly. And that's not what, she would do. She was obsessed with those dogs. Um, So they continued to follow him as he brought women in from all over the U.S. to put up in hotels. And the investigators would rent the adjoining rooms and being, and like pay attention to what's up. So you are right in terms of like he was bringing other women to, um, to Kansas. They also then went through his trash and found shredded documents. And there was one that helped them locate a storage locker. It's like, how many other people were they going to watch him bring until something terrible happened? Like, it is fucked up to just sit in a hotel room, like, terrorizing these women. I don't know. So they had to make a move. So after he was trying to lure down women from some farm, they decided they'd had enough and moved in. And they arrested him at the Santa Barbara Estates Mobile Home Park in Olaf. 
But I love that it's called Santa Barbara yeah. Estates. <laughs> it's like making it sound like coastal. <laughs> and this like, this trajectory of this crime and this recap is like as confusing as the episode, honestly. There's like so much happening. Yeah. Um. So June 2000, he is held and charged with aggravated sexual battery of two out-of-town women and stealing $500 worth of te- sex toys from one of the women. So two women that he met in local hotels for some sadomasochistic sex, but he ended up assaulting and robbing them. And so he was arrested on Friday um, and they spent the weekend making all the discoveries. So he was bringing in these women. The cops had this room. They were watching and still these women got assaulted. That's what's so fucked up that the cops just kind of like used live women as bait without them knowing that yeah. they were bait. Like, it's fucked up. Yeah. But so two SVU of the women would there, just use Rollins. Yes. <laughs> so because of the investigation starting, whatever. So Friday, he's arrested for harassing these two women, assaulting them and robbing them of all of their sex toys. And during the weekend, they started like a full hardcore investigation and they needed to find evidence. So his farm was 57 miles south of Kansas City um, and some hardworking cadaver dogs um, smelled some stuff around the trash and police found barrels and blood started pouring out of the barrels. And once they looked in, that's where they found Suzette Troutman. The second barrel was Isabella Lewicka. Now, in the storage locker that was in Raymore, Missouri, um, was 54 miles northeast of where he lived, and there were three more barrels there. And the manager of the storage unit was interviewed by the New York Times, and, you know, they were like, yeah, he would pay his rent on time, often in person, and then in quotes, he would run through here, I guess, to check on his bones. (laughs) And I just thought that was a funny Oh, my God. He would run through here, I guess, to check on his bones. Maybe I just like the word bones, but it just made me kind of like... Bones. I mean, I think it's also a very funny quote from a person not who does not comprehend that this is like a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So then some of the women they found in the there, they didn't even know were missing. So that's like Bonner, who is the prison librarian they found. Um, they found a mother-daughter duo named Sheila and Debbie Faith. The duo had not been seen or heard from since 1994. And Debbie had cerebral palsy and used a wheelchair. So he really, like, went after people that, like, really couldn't get away. Um, He convinced them to come out because they were living off of only $1,000 a month from the government and food stamps. And they were in a really desperate situation. So he moved them to Kansas and then got her a P.O. box and then continued to collect her government checks for years and pulled in over $80,000 in their checks over all of the years. So he's like a con man. It's basically like, I think we talked about this with other killers or serial killers. Like they don't want to kill or maybe they do. It's like, it's just a necessary thing they have to do to get what they want. You know, it's like, well, yeah, she was making too much noise. So I had to kill her. She was annoying. So that's what this guy, it's like, it's not even about the murder. Maybe it is, but it is about like, I want that money. So you have to die. Yeah, so was he, like, sexually assaulting them? Like, how was he murdering them? Like... Oh, I'll tell you about that. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, some of them he was meeting up to have sex with. Right. So, like, I don't really know. And Bonner, he had that relationship with. Yeah. Um, And I don't know what he did to the other women. It doesn't explicitly say that there was, like, any sort of rape and stuff. Yeah. That's not, like, what he's known for. Right, right. 
So the evidence started to pile at this point. There were receipts from the Roadway Inn from like um, 1985 where Lisa Stassi's name was on the receipt of staying there. Um, They found these blank letters with the signature of his victims. So he was charged with five murders in June 2000 and he was held on a $5 million bond. Um, And then his defense attorney would be a great SVU character in terms of like evil. A direct quote from the New York Times, uh, from Robinson's lawyer, Byron Cirillo, was, I resent the fact that people are now claiming that Mr. Robinson either directly or indirectly is a serial killer. And it's like, okay, you resent that. He killed people. Like, it's just such a crazy out-of-touch quote to me. Even Isn't if you it are like you it. killed more than two people, you're a serial killer? I mean, like, that's just the facts. Multiple barrels. Yeah. Like, I wonder if that Dex season Dexter uh, was like kind of inspired by this, to be mm. honest. I would want to hit up one, some of the writers um, and find out. Yeah. Or I guess, I guess a lot of people can hold people in barrels. But This, this is also seems... interesting that this man just goes by John Robinson. He doesn't have a middle name, which most of these people do, most serial killers do. And he was never given a name or anything. But I think that's like... You usually get a name when they can't find you for a long time. And maybe but that's he why. Was, but he was killing for a long time, but they weren't even looking for him. Yeah, but they, they yeah, weren't even right. connected. It wasn't yeah. like they were like, oh, we're looking for the Green River killer because we just keep finding all these bodies in the Green River. It was like they found him and then they found all his bodies. Yeah, which is scary because that means how many uh, fucking, ser- how many like Richard Ramirez style without any like actual patterns and different things are there, you know? Yeah. Like, but Richard was a creep out and about. Like people knew he was shady like this. Like, this guy was like, oh, yeah, he's so funny. Grilled a lot. His lawn looked great. Yeah, that's scary. Like, the guys that have, like, the mask on of, like, Married to Nancy Joe. Yeah. Yeah. And for just, I mean, obviously, he, like, compiled a lot of money, but, like, to kill a mother-daughter for $1,000 a month is just, like, pretty fucked up. Yeah. Pretty fucked up. So, he's a ruthless motherfucker who used whatever promise would work as a lure. Like, that's the thing. He didn't have an MO. It was like, come work for me or come fuck me or, you know. Also, they connected to him to four people who had gone missing. I mean, there's just like a lot of different connections and I just don't know what's going on. But July 2000, Morrison, who prosecuted the case in Kansas, added an aggravated interference with parental custody charge involving and carrying away of the baby of Tiffany Stassi. So Tiffany, Lisa's daughter from the 80s, uh, was adopted by a Midwestern family and at the time of this article, living with them. And that couple, though, was Robinson's brother. So it was Donald Robinson and his wife. So the police received a tip that the adoption had to do with the brother and stuff. So that's why they finally went and got DNA samples from the family. And it was confirmed that the 15-year-old was Tiffany. So I don't know who tipped off the police or in any way, but um, somebody did, and it is Tiffany. So her adopted uncle and family member, like, killed her fucking mom and gave her to the brother. So, like, they were at fucking family parties and hanging out. Like, she's this little kid hanging out with her uncle, John. She didn't see him a lot because, you know, they were in Illinois. But... That is so fucked. Um, She said that she didn't know the truth about John, but said she always felt weird around him with an off-putting feeling in the gut of her stomach. Um, But John, the thing is, he brought fake documents to the couple and helped facilitate it and had a certificate of adoption, but it was not a legal adoption. But he had all of this ready. So is he? it's really wild. And they do believe that the brother and his wife were victims of John Robinson too and were not at all in on the crime. And Tiffany says that she actually remembers her mom crying 
crying when she found out going, what did John do? How could he do this to us? So it is pretty clear that they were trying to have a kid and they couldn't. And I think John was like, I'm going to get my brother a kid. I think that's what happened. So, like, he thought he was doing oh, a good Oh, so do you thing. think he took Lisa on purpose for Tiffany? It wasn't like, oops, I killed this woman that has a kid. Now I got to get rid of the kid. No, that's why those social workers thought it was shady that right before Christmas, he was looking to help single moms and, like, young like, oh, women with kids. Oh, my God. It was like he newborns. was Christmas shopping for his brother. Yeah. That's what it was. That's fucked. Oh, my God. So it was the guys of like, oh, I have this program. And then it's like, oh, look, I have this baby. Here are the forms. And then he also did take money from his brother. Like, his brother owed him fees for this adoption paper, like this fake adoption that was not legal. Wow. Like, no basement for this guy. No. Not at all. Um, so the trial started in 2002 in Kansas. Uh, Morrison, the prosecutor, said that there was over 23,000 pages of police reports and more than 100 witnesses. Where were those witnesses before? As yeah. he's rolling the barrels around. I <sighs> Like, what? Um, so, Kara, they discovered 18 hammers on his property. And it was concluded from the autopsies that he killed his victims with a hammer. But the technicians were not able to connect the specific hammer to the murders. Ugh. Yikes, that's brutal. Brutal. It took the jury less than a day to deliver a guilty verdict on October 29th, 2002. He was sentenced to death um, January 2003. One juror of the death sentence told ABC News that since he was such a good con man, like even from jail, he conned Beverly Bonner and like they were afraid to give him life because the same thing could happen. And so it was the only appropriate thing was death because he, um, like you said, has no basement ceiling yeah, floor. Yeah, no, yeah. So more twists. Like I said, since he committed crimes in Kansas and Missouri, once that trial wrapped, they sent him to Missouri for another one. And with all his scams and crimes, he played jurisdiction games, like I said. So this, like, screwed him, which I kind of like. In Missouri, the authorities offered him a deal where if he pled guilty and then gave info to where the remains of the three women who had not been found yet. And so the plea happened and they, like, he, like, never gave what? any info at all. But Ugh. they took... so. Like, what did they earn? If, yeah. Why give him a deal if he's not even going to give you the names or where they are? But a plea deal went through and he still did not cooperate. Also, he was probably like, what is it, what deal could possibly be good for me when I am already getting the death penalty in Kansas, maybe? Yeah, but... Like, Missouri can't really, really threaten me now because I'm going to die in this other state. I don't know. But also, like, fucking... I mean, we're asking someone to, like not be a piece of shit when yeah. he's literally a piece of shit. Yeah. He is now in his late 70s on death row in Kansas at the El Dorado Correctional Facility and is appealing his death sentence. Now, updates on Tiffany Stassi. So she was 16, you know, when she found out the truth about her life. So Tiffany was raised as Heather. So Heather's biological father wanted to meet her, but she was confused and scared and said she didn't want to meet him. Um, but she did become really close to her maternal grandmother, who was Pat Sylvester, um, who passed away in 2018. Um, since the adoption was not legal, uh, the Robinsons actually legally adopted her when she was 18. And she decided to keep the given name that she got, Heather, and she liked her parents. So she um, stayed there. As of 2020, she is 35. She married um, a man and is a proud mother of some boys. And she is also now looking to connect with her biological father, Carl. She can't find him, and she's tried really hard and wants to make amends and move forward. She just wasn't ready at the time of 
finding out. And she also is still hoping to hopefully find Lisa's remains one day to properly bury her mother. Oh, my God. That's intense. Yeah. And that is that. So that is the case of John Robinson. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for all of that research. I'm so surprised I haven't heard of this man, especially because I know about the barrel murders from Dexter. Yeah, I don't know why we don't know more about him um, because it is also, like, salacious. You know what I mean? There wasn't even that much, like, articles about him or pieces, you know? It was just, like, a couple of giant newspapers. And it's like, I can kind of see why someone like him would be able to get away with it in the 80s, but then it's, like, in the 90s, it's so funny that he, like, embraced technology because it's like, dude, the only reason you're not busted is because there's no way to trace you, and now you're just hot. You have five computers now, and you're just gonna let people, like, make a full trail. But maybe people didn't really know yet, like, that your computer stores everything forever. And if there's more, if you want more, there is a 2020. Like, there's a 2020. Ooh, okay. Good to um, know. And they talk to Heather and stuff. So, he's fucked, though. He's probably one of the worst people we've talked about. And we talk about terrible people. Yeah. Well, now we, you know, we do have a legend. We have a true fucking legend coming onto our show. So, get your fucking panties out of a twist. <laughs> <laughs> Untwist those panties and get ready. Guys, today's guest has an IMDb resume like you wouldn't believe. We are talking the talented Mr. Ripley, Snow Falling on Cedars, American Horror Story, Modern Family, and Aliza Traeger classic, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. You guys know her today as Margaret Talmadge. Please enjoy our chat with legendary Celia Weston. Well, before SVU, I do want to touch on How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, my ultimate favorite movie. And... um. We my my parents were from Russia, but we learned bullshit from that movie. We play all the time. <laughs> Such an iconic scene. And I was wondering if there were memories, if you get stopped on the street, and if people think of you when they play bullshit now forever, like we do as a family. Everyone knows that film. It has never not played. And um, I don't think, I don't think there's been a day since its release that it was allowed to play on television that it hasn't. <laughs> but, and I, you know, I, I watched it this past week. You know, I can't get enough of it. But one day, some time ago now, I was going to a screening on Houston Street, the Far East Theater there that has multiplex and they have special screenings there sometimes. And as usual, I was early. And I happened to look down at the box office and I thought I saw a familiar figure. And I just kind of walked towards it. And it was Matthew McConaughey just (gasps) deciding if he wanted to see a film, you know, he has some time to kill. And so I just walked up behind him and I said, it's your mama. And he turned around and we had, you know, a nice big hug. And um, I said, that film, my gosh, it's just been a cash cow. And he said, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I bet your gift package is a little bit bigger than mine, yeah. but I'm, I'm not complaining. I love it. That's so funny. I love you going up to Matthew McConaughey on the street for a hug. That's so fun. Um <laughs> And then we interviewed the actor Daniel Sunjata on our podcast a few weeks ago, and he mentioned this show Echoes. And then when I was looking up what you've been up to, I saw you're going to be in Echoes, and it looks 
amazing. What can you tell us about that project? Well, you probably know a lot more about it than I do, but I did have it in my notes because I loved doing it. I loved my part. The writing was beautiful. And we worked with women directors. And I'm sorry, we still have to make that distinction, but and women I, uh, second ADs. And that was thrilling. The costume designer was wonderful and helped so much in making um, distinctive my character. Because, you know, I'm, I'm not lit. I don't have the internet or a smartphone, <laughs> so I can't keep checking in for these things. But if you know when it's airing, tell me. <laughs> oh, we would love to know. I don't know. I'm not sure, but it sounds like it's going to be this one of year. those Netflix bingeable shows that everybody's obsessed with. To well, me, of course, I don't have Netflix. So no. I'll have to. <laughs> well, so let me ask you. I mean, I waste most of my life on my cell phone, computer, laptop. So what are you, are you reading? What do you do with your lovely days <laughs> that you're not sucked in by a cell phone? Well, I text and um, I'm addicted to television. And it's an occupational hazard, so I have no shame about it. <laughs> well, let's let's dive into your let's dive into this episode stolen that you are a main character in. I know it is from many many years ago, season three of SVU. So when they were a little baby show before they became the juggernaut that they are now. And um, I don't know if you remember, but like you know, you your character. Um, Captain Cragen comes to see you after many, many years of your daughter's murder case, like kind of going cold. And I've never seen anybody happier to see Captain Cragen. You're like, it's Captain Cragen. I was just wondering <laughs> if you um, liked working with Dan Florek. We got to speak to him on our podcast and we love him. And oh, you had yeah. a lot of scenes with him. Yes, I think he's very appealing. Obviously, that shows from uh, his endurance on the series. I tell you what I remember especially was what a beautiful home we were in. And I have no idea where that is. Where in New York is that? Does that exist? It's like a just after turn of the century, beautiful construction and craftsmanship and all these homes. Do you know where we shot it? I wish we were going we to ask, ask you. That's on our I list. Really, you know, they just drove me there. I had no, no, that's what every. That's what all the actors say. We're always like, "Where were you in that scene?" And they go, "We just get in a van and then we're in a new place. <laughs> like we don't and know you're where we're in a trailer. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs> and um, but it was beautiful, and I was happy for them to at least have that, having lost their daughter. Yeah, that was a beautiful home. I do remember the scene, the last scene for us in Captain Cragen's office when our grandson is being introduced to us for the first time since his abduction. And um, we're in Cragen's office and the door opens and the boy is brought into us. And I do remember how impactful that was and that it was short and sweet. I don't even know if we had lines, but I do remember I had this amount of time to live everything that she was really feeling and was gratified that that did happen, I felt, as an actor. But then to see it, to see actual, uh, a, a real flood of actually dropping, dripping with a like a shadow as they came down, I thought, all right, that, you know, you want to have the real emotion, but then also have real waterworks with a shadow. Yeah. 
I was, I actually noticed that. I was, I thought that scene was so emotional and really powerful. And I was like, how do these actors get their eyes to like fill up with tears <laughs> and then only let like one or two juicy tears fall like at a certain time? Like, it's really, it was really impressive. I don't know. Do you like, what do you usually do? Do you, are you good at crying on cue? Do you usually think of something super sad in your life or? You know, you just live it and you have ways to get yourself there. But yeah. I do remember in working on Ang Lee's film, Ride with the Devil. Uh, it was a Civil War era film and I was a widowed farm wife. Uh, I won't make you go through the whole story, but a battle between Union soldiers and renegades, uh, non-soldiers happens in my home. And there's a big shootout with my young daughter's life in jeopardy and mine. And so um, I remember Ang asking me, you know, I was crying because of the circumstances, but I remember him asking me for a tear on, on like a word. And I wow. thought, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this sucker. And I, I did. And they didn't use that shot in the scene at all. But <laughs> no, I know, but I, you know, I was glad I could deliver the goods. Well, back to SVU, do you have an opinion on what should have happened to your grandson? What did happen? They sent him with his he biological his father. Bio dad, yeah. Who he didn't know about, or the biological dad didn't know he existed. So they took him from his adoptive parents and gave him to the biological dad. And we were pissed. <laughs> well, I see that. <laughs> I guess we just felt, just knowing he was alive and could yeah. be in our yeah. life somehow was um, what I, my takeaway on it. So didn't invest in those. I do remember being in the court scene because I remember Stephanie Marsh coming over and introducing herself to me. We didn't have anything to do but reaction shots in the gallery, you know, in the court scene. But she came over and introduced herself and I thought she was just charming. I'm sorry, that's all I took away from the <laughs> no. courtroom. No, that's totally fine. We were just like... Let his let him visit his grandparents and let him stay with his adopted parents. We had lots of thoughts, you know, but that's our job. And have you always lived in New York? Well, bless your heart. <laughs> no, she's that. a Southern gal. <laughs> um, no, I've been here since drama school, since college. Do you tend to just book a lot of Southern roles? Because, or I mean, I'm sure you have, like, you've gone to drama school. I'm sure you can like hide your accent, but do you think it's just like? something about you, you just book all these roles as a Southern lady or? I know that I bring an authenticity to it and I take a lot of pride in that because there's nothing more heinous to a Southerner than the lack of that and rendering a Southern persona. Um, and I have a very good ear, so I'm happy to be able to delineate pretty specifically between who's from where and their level of education, their economics of their lives and things like that. It always just depends on the writing, you know, and the role, as you guys know, that's what draw is. One of my big stories, I was going to tell you to tell Celia about seeing Palms in the movie theater. With oh, yes. yes. 
I I saw Palms in the movie theater with my new baby. Like I had like a oh. like a two month old baby with me, and I took her to see Palms with some friends. And I just like loved that movie so much. And I guess I kind of wanted to know what it sounds like you really appreciated the experience on Echoes of having all these female directors. And I was wondering like about your experience on Palms with this like powerhouse of actresses and a mostly female cast. Oh, yes, it was wonderful. It's the third film I've done with Diane Keaton. Uh, the other two, she directed. And I just admire her so much. Of course, the location was outside of Atlanta, and it was incumbent upon us to make that a Southern character. But I loved that. I mean, I knew that woman like mother's milk, you know, that all of this superficiality of being so welcoming and gracious and yet underneath just, this is my world and you're just maybe in it. Mm -hmm. But um, conscribe or get out, all couched in that sullen nicety and welcoming. Um, So I loved that role that I got to be the villain. I was wondering... You've played so many characters in so many different roles. Is there is there ever like a is there ever like a role that you're like, oh, I wish I got cast as that, like a like a something you're dying to play? Oh my gosh, let's start over and just talk about that. <laughs> it's a cruel world. <laughs> yes, that has definitely happened. And I've had letters, you know, more than one, actually from directors after did something did not go my way saying, you know, maybe we should have done this together. Ooh, like so, letters of regret? That must feel yes, good. Like saying, that must feel does. good. Yeah. It does. I mean, it's not <laughs> like I have 30 on a wall somewhere. <laughs> but when it happens, you go, well, yeah, me too, by yeah. the way. <laughs> um, if you came back to an, a Law & Order franchise or, you know, specifically SVU, would you, what kind of character would you like to play? Have you played a killer? Have I played a killer? We need you back as like a, oh, yes. a killer. <laughs> no one would suspect there you. Gay. Oh my gosh. I probably have to play it in a, a collar here and braces and canes <laughs> just to do the actually take a person out without if it's just mashing some pills and putting it in a drink. Yeah, yeah, I think I yeah. could do that. Oh yeah, they, I mean they don't they don't show a lot of murders in action on SVU. We usually just find That's a body, true. you know. That's true. So I think we could easily. Yeah, I can imagine you. you telling detectives like, "Please leave my house without a warrant," you know, very firmly. <laughs> yes. I can see that in my fantasy. Um, this has been so wonderful. I don't know if you have anything like to add about you know an interaction with iced tea or something, but you you don't have (laughs) to if you don't. We had so little interaction with the actual cast, you know, just what I said, because Dan Florek came to our house and then um, we're in the courtroom as supernumeraries with cutting to reaction shots. We weren't ever, you know, being interrogated in a room or (laughs) any of those juicy things and where they're trying to get our our um, fingerprints on a Coke can or any of that stuff. <laughs> get to do that. Didn't get a Coke out of it. No. No. <laughs> we, we, yeah, we need you back on the show. That'll be well, my that's awfully kind. request. Yeah. Thank you. 
What an icon. And obviously, love a lady that stays in New York. Uh, like, I feel like all the coolest actresses we talk to are always like, ugh. And she's just like a Southern actress, like, swishing around New York being like, hello, Matthew McConaughey. It's me, your mama. <laughs> I love that. Like, yeah, so accomplished. We really get to talk to the best. I was watching Old Drag Race, like I said up top, and like, Dennis O'Hare was a judge. And I'm like, we fucking talked to him. Yeah. It is kind of wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then our friend, Joel Kambooster, was like, oh, I'm shocked that you were able to get him. And I'm like, honey, have you seen who else we get? <laughs> Dennis O'Hare should be so lucky. JK, yeah. We were obsessed. No, we loved him. Oh, my God. He was a dream. Um, this was yeah. a twisted one. The tw Yeah, the real-life case was super twisted. The case in, in the sh episode was just kind of one of those classic SVU, like, more, like morality quandaries that they give you. Like, what's the right move here, you know? I didn't really think what happened in the episode was the right move, but whatever. No, I. but yeah, they should have given the boy... To, he, they should, he should have been able to stay with his adoptive family and just, like, visit his have bio visitation, people. yeah. And then he could have, like, a big, fun family, but, like, what the fuck? Just being like, nope, you're out of there? I, I hate that dad. And I only think of him as the Sex in the City guy who likes to be spanked, so I can't even take him <laughs> seriously as a father. I'm like, go home and watch your sicko porn, sir. <laughs> um, but yeah, the crime was upsetting. Yeah, I mean, th these kind of crimes, I feel like, don't really happen anymore where someone, like, is able to go untraced, like, luring people across the country because, like, they... I mean, he started to have, like, email, right? And that's kind of how he got busted. Yeah, and also... And you, it's also twisted. And you, I think you do jokes about this, right? About, like... Uh, Ted Bundy having a girlfriend, yeah. like a quiet girl. Like, I also, this man had a wife as he's just, like, luring women to their deaths. I mean, Fritzel had his own daughter in the basement and his mom, his wife had no idea. Her mom, like, it's it's really, I wonder if it's, like, they know but they can't face it or they really don't know. I mean, like, when you hear the Green River Killer's wife talk about him, she's like, he was a perfect husband. And this man murdered, I think he's one of the most prolific serial killers of all time. He murdered like upwards of 50 women and sex work, mostly sex workers. And he just had this wife who was like, he was the best husband. And actually when he was married to her, the killings went down. I don't know. I don't know. That's fucked. <laughs> like, it is fucked. And that he's not more known. Like the fact we didn't know more about him when he like inspired Dexter episodes too. Yeah. With all these yeah. girls. How some of these things, it's it's, it's interesting because it's like, it, it's like how we talked about how the the shark-eyed guy who killed all, all his kids, like, I forgot the name Marcus of that. Marcus Wesson. Wesson. Marcus Wesson. Like, that was buried by the, the case of Scott Peterson. Or, like, right now, I feel like the only reason we're paying attention to Amber Heard and Johnny Depp is because there's, like, not really anything else. There's, like, nothing else going on in the news to, like, rival it that, you know, that... Pe so, there's just these certain crimes that dip, like e that pediatrician that molested all those children. Why is that not? Why is that not something we all know about? You know, like... Yeah. It's crazy. Like, you're looking up that shit in, like, Delaware newspapers. That That's it? Like, it's crazy what gets national attention is all I'm saying. Yeah, well, I start, after talking about Dexter, I was like, wait, are we promised a season two for New Blood? And I don't think we are. I think that they'll do it, right? I want it. I want some ghost stuff. I want it. I just want Michael C. Hall working, you know? I believe yeah. in him. I believe in his talent. And I just, I want him really Well, that could be part out. of the problem is he might have something else going on. I mean, it's no, kind of hinges. It hinges on him. You don't think that there's a possible, like, HBO show in development with that guy? No, because I would have known about it. Oh, I'm a big I mean. fan. 
Okay. She's not, <laughs> she's got Google alerts for Michael C. Hall. <laughs> no, I'm going to look it up right now if he has anything in pre-production. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I feel like I would have known if he has an upcoming project. Yeah. Upcoming projects, one. All right. He, he's in the Gettysburg Address. Okay. Maybe that was... Uh, it's about Lincoln's Gettysburg. Okay. So he's in something yeah. not interesting. That sucks. Oh, Jason Alexander's in it. Good for him. <laughs> It's just a uh, like a uh, historical movie starring a bunch of people that we consider to be washed up, I guess. Okay, um, <laughs> let's see. So I don't know what we've learned from this episode is you should let twelve year olds uh, decide if they want to live with their fucking mom's murderers' uh, sons or not. And- also, wear a condom, you fucking loose-dicked lunatics in college. Wear a condom. Abortion's about to be illegal. Stop willy-nilly. Yeah. Actually, so there's someone who's been really trying hard to lure me on Instagram, and I had a couple drunk nights in Finland that I was like, all right, I'll talk to you. <laughs> but I, and I've complained about this in the past. The, like, quickness that people want to come inside strangers is shocking to me. Even in New Orleans, like on Tinder, like third messages are like, can I come inside you? And it's like, you don't even know my last name. That's insane to me. Yeah. That's insane. That's insane <laughs> that, you're wi- that you're willing to just like jizz so freely. Yeah, maybe I could take some uh, screenshots. Wow. I just don't understand it. I just don't understand if the risk involved is really worth it to <sighs> yeah. stop jizzing in people. Stop being loose in college. Take responsibility. Yeah. Stop marrying women that are clear killers. I mean, I don't be, know. yeah, be sexually free, but don't, you know, don't fucking. Uh, and also, yeah, I don't know. I feel like this taught me like a little bit more about the adoption process and how difficult it is, um, which actually leads us into what would Sister Peg do? Oh, wow. Uh, look at you. Well, I really didn't even mean to do that, but. I know, <laughs> but that was impressive. You, <laughs> you could this... be on The View, honestly, with that kind of transition. <laughs> The View better watch out. Oh my God, we haven't seen each other forever. Meghan McCain's book was such a flop. That flop bitch. I was so fun. You saw about (laughs) this? She sold 322 copies of the book. Like legit. Yes. And so then she went to her dad's grave and put the book in front of his grave to help try to sell it. And then... I saw a clip online that I reposted that was like, someone cut all of the time. She goes, my father, my father, my father, my father. And it was over six minutes long. Like, everything is on the back of her father. of her living off of John McCain's name. Wow. And I don't even know if he was that well-liked. It's like your moderately liked father is who you're name dropping. I don't know. Like, Lisa, that is a floppy Yana. Like, I could sell 300 books. Oh, yeah, easily. I mean, just Uh, your summer camp friends alone. Yeah. Yeah, you'd be able to sell a thousand (laughs) books. Well, and our listeners. My summer camp friends, my mom group. Yeah, like, and then I take it to the That's Messed Up people. I bet you guys buy a few copies. I don't know. Like, but that's, wow. Well, listen. 322 I'm actually going to talk about a book that you should, uh, actually, this isn't a book, never mind. I'm going to talk about an article that you should read, not a book. Uh, the, our What Would Sister Peg Do segment, guys. This is every week we tell you uh, an organization. We point you to an article, a book, some kind of resource that can help flesh out what we talked about on today's episode. And we wanted to point you towards this article that's called This Is What Nobody Tells You About Adoption by Andrea Ross. It was for the Huffington Post. And as an adopted child herself, Ross discusses the types of trauma that a child can experience when their adoptive parents don't have the tools to help them navigate not only the life they've brought 
into, but the questions surrounding their heritage. And she wants to reframe the narrative around adoption, which has also been centered around the um, a harmful myth that children have been like, quote unquote, rescued or saved and uh, offer a more nuanced perspective that can be helpful for those who are raising adopted children. And I have friends who are in that process right now. So I know that this affects a lot of people and it's really... Oh, it's like very heavy on a lot of sides. And I think this is a great um, article that uh, will give you more info. So it is in our show notes. I can't really read it out to you right now because it involves a lot of backslashes and numbers, but check out our show notes for a link to that. And as always, in our Instagram stories called WWSPD. Yeah, thank you all for always getting involved and learning about things. Now, next week, we will be doing Legacy, and that's season two, episode four. Watch it on Hulu, Peacock, VPN, not a stick. Um, (laughs) Or you can visit your local library, maybe even. You know, who knows? But truly a pleasure to have listeners as special as you. Keep messaging us. Send us emails. We love you guys. See you next week. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmesseduppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Annalise Nelson. And to our mixer, John Bradley. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.